Gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. us on YouTube Live, listen to us on the Global Star Radio Network and Blog Talk, that's BTR. All listening venues, you can just go to HagmanReport.com and How to Listen's right there. You've got numerous options. I want to thank Todd from Global Star Radio for working around the clock as he does um, and for carrying our program. And I want to thank the fine folks at Blog Talk Radio as well for carrying our program and for believing enough in us um, to carry our program. And I want to thank each and every one of you out there who are listening and watching. We've got a really a great show lined up for you tonight. Uh, I'm going to kick it over to Joe here momentarily where he'll give you the lineup for tonight. Just to remind people, we broadcast live every weeknight. That's 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. Um, a couple of things I would really... I ask that you would do. Um, first of all, if you go to HagmanReport.com, please please bookmark HagmanReport.com and Hagman and Hagman.com, both of both those sites. Please bookmark them. But we have some very talented individuals who, who have submitted some just incredible works to HagmanReport.com. John Robertson, for example, our program director, producer, has is just a very talented writer. John Rappaport and others. Uh, Sergeant Tim, for example. And Sergeant Tim is, when he when he retires from the military, he'll be using his full name, but for right now, that's how we, we refer to him. And others. And visit their websites as well the the original documents okay or the original source I would also like you to go to canadafreepress.com that's canadafreepress.com I wrote an article this morning it's called no ma'am <laughs> it's it's not bad piece it's only 500 words you can go go to Canada Free Press and, and what I'd like you to do is just leave a comment I, I don't care if it's just a you know boy you really stunk up the place with that article comment or it doesn't matter the traction that we need and, and I ask that you do this for all articles not just mine um, but engage become engaged on the internet and the reason I ask this is because we are faced right now with a level of censorship despite Trump being in the off in, 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 in this is day three and and I'm going to congratulate uh, Donald Trump and his team for making it, for sending to the office of the presidency. And apparently he hit the ground running today. We saw what he did on Saturday with his uh, visit to the CIA. It's customary. Everything that you're seeing take place with the exception of his own initiatives are customary. For example, visiting the, the, the CIA. I mean, it's it's pretty much planned out for you kind of a turnkey operation. This is what you do 
on day two. This is what you do, you know, the, and so on. So a lot of what you're seeing is not his initiative, except those executive orders and, and the actions and the impromptu press briefings and such. Those are his. But the, um, uh, the, the ceremonies, the, the pomp and circumstance, the meetings and all that are, are pretty much planned out for him. But, um, be, the reason I brought this up, and again, I'm, I just want to, I asked Joe if I could take five minutes and he said sure. So I'm going to take five minutes. I just want to, just want to give a, a, a little bit of my heart to the women who are listening to this broadcast. And I looked at her demographics and, um, I, I think, I think 47% of our audience is female. It's, it's pretty close, half and half male and female. 47% female and 53% male I believe it. that's how it works out but regardless this message is for the women who are listening to this and I don't care if you're 15, 50 or 85 or 105 I, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart thank you for being the woman that you are thank you for being classy Thank you for being strong. Thank you for supporting your husband, if you have one. Thank you for not succumbing to fear. Thank you for being passionate about the, for the truth. Thank you for being warm and genuine and kind, funny and smart. Thank you for understanding that you have a job, a role, to, a job to do and a role to play in these times in which we live. And I'm not being smart about this. I'm not, th- th- this is not satirical at all or, or anything. I did write, again, I wrote the article, No Ma'am, that appears on HagmanReport.com. I'd like to see it get some traction because I think it's kind of funny, just myself, but, I think a lot of things are funny that others don't. Um, but it talks about the women I'm not referencing. And you know, I just want to say thank you, not just to, not, not just the, the listeners and, but I want to say thank you to, to the women in my life. Publicly, I want to publicly thank my wife for being classy and dignified. In supportive. And I want to thank Mrs. Stephen Quayle and Mrs. Pastor David Langford, Kim, and all of the women that I know personally. They're, you're dignified. And, and of course, you know, Mrs. Dr. Ted Brower and you're dignified. You're classy. You're true. Um, I'm impressed. I'm impressed by each one of you. And, and you know, when I saw this past weekend, broke my heart because I realized that that there is such a failure of the man 
of men in my generation and, and generations subsequent. There's a failure to lead. There's a failure to protect. There's a failure to guard the most precious people in our lives. And guys, if you're listening to this, this is my message to you. I would hope that you would stand as a protector and as a loving protector of your wife, of your daughter, of your sister, of your mother, whatever. As is biblically mandated. I would ask that you be the the man. Because what we saw this past weekend, Saturday, we saw a group of degenerate, classless, undignified, repulsive women and tremendously emasculated men gather together in multiple cities, Washington and all, all across the United States, for this march, this woman's march on Washington and other cities. And it broke my heart to see these people. It broke my heart to see the, the children that were present, that were subjected to the profanity, are subjected to the lack of leadership that these women obviously need. You know, sometimes we joke about the estrogen-soaked streets and, and such. But, but there's an obvious failure of leadership that's represented in that march. But we, instead of focusing on the debris... And that's the only thing I can, I, the only thing that comes to my mind is really the, the debris, human debris. The morally and spiritually bankrupt people that lined the streets. That had no clue why they were there, or if they did, they had no idea that they were, that they were succumbing or that they were being sub, uh, subjected to, to lies upon lies upon lies. And it's the duty of the man, I believe, if, if, if the women had true men in their lives, that march would have not taken place. The women that were involved in that march, in coordinating that march, there was four. I was on with Dave Hodges last night, and I named them, but I'll just name them now. Tamika Mallory, Carmen Perez, Linda Sensor and Bob Bland. Yes, Bob is a female. I had to double check that. Not Bobby. Bob Bland. No, seriously, not no, transgendered. No, I know. Okay, no. With respect, and, and I'm. I'm issuing a couple of reports on this, and and I'm by today. Maybe you, you may think, oh well, you know why even bother? There's so much more news to really talk about. But here's the deal: there were over 400 partners in quotation marks, two big sponsors, but over 400 partners 
involved in the planning and, and setup of that march. Soros has obviously has ties to over 56 of them, of the partners of the money behind the, the, the women and the, or whatever you call them. The two platinum or the two big, uh, primary sponsors are Planned Parenthood, obviously, and the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is nothing more than a, in my view, a communist front. Um, Linda Sasor, just so you know, the one of the primary event planners for that march is the head of the Arab American Association of New York. She's responsible to, uh, for, for the school closures for two Muslim holidays. She's Palestinian. She's Islamic. She's pro Sharia law. And she tweeted out in 2015 that, uh, she would like to see Sharia law all across the United States. And of course, of course, hinged her tweets upon the fact that, um, Sharia would bring interest free laws or interest free, uh, an interest free economy in terms of, uh, lending. Meanwhile, there was a young lady in Prescott, from Prescott, Arizona. And let me see if I, 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 I when I read this and when I was looking at this, I, I just, my, my heart sank uh, about this. The, um, this young woman in Prescott, Arizona, um, and forgive me, I don't have her name right handy. Her name, I think it's Kayla. Um, I'll be writing about it. She was a nurse and she went over into the Middle East to help, uh, to help the wounded. And this was in 2015, I believe. She went over to Syria and, uh, she was kidnapped by Al Baghdadi and made his sex slave and ultimately killed. The, and, 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 I really want people to understand this. The primary sponsor of that march yesterday, this Linda Sassour, this woman, when this Kayla from Prescott, Arizona was kidnapped and brutally raped and made a sex slave, this Linda Sensor blamed Kayla, or shall I say, let me be more accurate, blamed the victim, or appeared to blame the victim in a series of communications and postings and publications, saying that Islam is not, is, is not at fault here, but suggested, of course, the victim was to blame in this case. Typical liberal fashion yeah sadly and uh, I'm, I'm going to ask Jackie here um, to grab my notes from my office I, at some point um, so I could do the proper thing and give her name and, and the circumstances of, of her kidnapping because I think that this is important to understand that, that this is this is this is the mindset the intellectual scope of these people uh, of these of these What's behind these marches? And then again, you've got, you've got Planned Parenthood. I started off kind of slow and deliberate intentionally because I really, I guess at the very heart of all of this, what really matters, I believe, is the preciousness 
of the women in all of our lives. Their bravery, their support, their, their, their loving touch, their, their role as moms and as, as wives and grandmas. I mean, how important is that? You, you've got the most important job in the world and to see that sullied by this group of, uh, feral, immoral people yesterday or Saturday. It it just saddens me. I saw a lot of pictures, some videos of the different protests and the people who attended the protests. And it was pretty disturbing. I mean, you had the, the feminist protesters partnering up with Satanists, partnering up with different groups from, I mean, all I mean, videos where they're calling each other comrade and it was a shame. It was a shame. You know, and, and I try to lighten it up when I wrote that, with that 500 word op-ed piece this morning, you know, no ma'am, making a reference to Al Bundy, uh, mirrored with children. Um, it's the first thing that came to my mind, the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the Amazonian masterhood. Uh, I, it, I, I don't think, I mean, if there was a caricature, caricature of, what happened that would be it but yeah you're right joe i mean it's sadly this is just um and one of the comments i saw of people commenting on different articles and pictures was you know uh these people don't even know what they're protesting exactly which got me to think and i was thinking how many people are gonna go somewhere go out into a big crowd big city to protest for something they don't know what they're protesting i don't believe that to be the case i believe that they well, believe they were yeah. protesting some, either if it was based on misleading information, um, or they had their own, you know, personal area that they wanted to protest. I don't think, I think what people meant to say was it's not a big of a protest about or against Donald Trump. I think that was the reason that a lot of them got together, but I can't, I can't see these people just protesting it, it, Unless it was just solely on fault, faulty information, well, they it, went for support. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. The, and, and well, when, when you look at the and see that that's a good point because a lot of those women out there, the, the most vulgar of the vulgar, uh, holding up. I can't even, and I'm not going to say the words or even describe the pictures, but a, a lot of them have to had to do with the female reproductive system and obviously mm-hmm. the hats. And some of the, the way they dressed, I mean, they're half nude. Yeah, yeah. Tape yeah. on their chest and uh, words on their stomach and arms. And I, I would prefer to, I'd be passing out burlap, you know, really. I mean, I'd be, I, I was almost gouging my eyes out, uh, you know. Well, I don't get it if they're, a lot of their messages are, uh, I, I, the one. These I aren't women. Me- These are not Eric women. is, uh, some of the women had it written on their stomach. My outfit is not an invitation, period. And then, but they were like half nude or, you know, it didn't make sense to me. I don't get it. Well, I don't get the mindset behind. You, you can't, I have, I have a saying, you can't, you can't argue with crazy. Okay. That's why I don't even engage crazy. Um, people's, I've had some, I've had a number of people send me emails saying, why aren't you defending yourselves against certain accusations that are out there against 
against me. And, and you know, because really it, it's an exercise in futility because number one, if people really knew, if people really had the facts, in my case, or in our case anyway, um, they, they wouldn't be making the statements. Number two, it's difficult to, to be rational with someone who's inherently nuts, crazy. This is my personal opinion, by the way. Or outright just lying and making lying. things up right. or whatever right. the reason. So but, it's, it's to me, you just, you just roll with it because, you know, it, it just, it doesn't matter. But getting back to the point real quick here, and because I know we, we've had a good lineup, uh, I just want to make sure people understand that, that, uh, a big part of this, what's behind all of these movements of late, refusefascism.org, the street level, the street level, um, and folks, you can, you can verify this, but the street level protest organized by refusefascism.org, especially that the previous, uh, last week, the previous week with the protests at the inauguration. <laughs> now, the initiators include, but are not limited to people like Bill Ayers, uh, Carl Dix, the founding member, everyone knows Bill Ayers, but Carl Dix, the founding member of the Revolutionary Communist Party USA. Um, Robin D.G. Kelly, uh, Fran Luck, P.Z. Myers. And I might be publishing these names. Yusuf Salem. How many, does that name ring a bell? Yusuf Salem? I don't know. Cat Stevens. Cats in the cradle. Yeah. That Yusuf Salem. Okay. And filmmaker, uh, David uh, Zeiger. Just to name a few. And very quickly, while everyone's focus was on this march, did you know that David Brock was having a meeting down in uh, Florida? Uh, Brock, David Brock, for those of you who don't know, just very quickly, is uh, he's the head of a group called Media Matters for America. It's a liberal news media watchdog. Share Blue, which is a liberal news media site. American Bridge, which is the Democratic Party's primary opposition research organization, which has... Which is involved in, uh, sliming Trump and, and people. And the Citizens for Responsible and, uh, Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, known by the acronym of CREW. Well, this past weekend, for, from Thursday last until Saturday, Brock assembled about 120 people down in Florida. In fact, uh, at the Turnberry Isle Resort in the Ventura, Florida, that's where he's at, which for this weekend conference. Representatives down in this, at the Turnberry Resort included, with Brock included various attorneys general, state and federal officials, representative from four major labor unions. You had, uh, that's Stephanie, uh, Shyrock, or Shy, uh, Shryock of Emily's List, Cecile Richards of Planned Parenthood, Elise Hogue of Narrell, Pro-choice, as well as uh, narrow pro-choice, as well as the five candidates who are vying for the head of the DNC. They all met in a Turnberry Resort, Isle Resort in Ventura, Florida. Brock is attempting to assemble a. We're attempting to to put together this initiative to impeach Donald Trump by any means necessary, and is also getting the forty million dollars. To, together uh, to fight his initiatives. You know who's, who's funding that? Do tell. George Soros. Of course he is. He has uh, been linked already to funding uh, trying to impeach the President Donald Trump. 
which is no surprise. And there's already been a, I don't have the information in front of me, a lawsuit filed against Trump, which is related to his business dealings and receiving foreign payments while sitting as the president of the United States and the owner of companies. Now, I'm sure if there is any wrongdoing just from him being in that situation, he'll take well, care of it, I'd imagine, based on real quick, what we've Joe, seen so far. This, uh, I just, going back, to understand the significance of where this meeting is being held, remember Gary Hart from the 88 uh, elections, presidential elections. The CIA, there's a the criminal element of cabal within the CIA that's run by the State Department, and it's kind of an off-the-books part of the CIA. It's not not, not your CIA that you saw Saturday. Anyway, um, they, they're they heavily involved in setting people up and setting people like Gary Hart up. Uh, remember Monkey Business, Donna Rice, way back when. Well, I'll be doing a report on this and a video report on this. But, Joe, I, I, I'm sorry. I took up a lot of time. No, Our it's fine. guest coming up is uh It's good because I don't want to get into this until uh, James is with us. I will just briefly mention a few of the executive orders that Trump signed today which is the first one is most important and um, kind of where I think we'll start off with James is withdrawing the U.S. from the Trans-Pacific Partnership under executive order. He was able to do that because the TPP was not ratified by Congress under Obama. Therefore, with an executive action, he could uh, do away with that. Two, he froze all federal hirings except for the military. And then three, this was an interesting one, uh, he cut all foreign fundings for NGOs uh, two NGOs for those NGOs who practice or promote abortions. Isn't that something? Yeah, and when we come he's back, keeping, he's keeping his word at least now, right? Well, the, seems the, the TPP was a big one. Yeah. Um, the abortion, I think, uh, the cutting the foreign funding of abortions, I think, is Step he's one. Um, testing the ground to see how much blowback he gets. Okay. The federal funding was something that he said he was going to. Uh, the federal hiring freeze. Um, and the cutting of business regulations were two things that he said he was going to do uh, on the campaign trail a lot. He talked about um, gutting a lot of the regulations, government regulations pertaining to businesses. And uh, I think that's one of the next ones he's going to do. And he, from the headlines, it says up to 75% of regulations he wants to cut. So we'll see where we go from here. And we have a half hour at the end of the show. We'll kind of recap right. and get into what we didn't get into in this segment. When we come back, James Corbett from the Corbett Report. You can go there now, thecorbettreport.com, or his YouTube channel, Corbett Report, right after this. Stay with us. Back, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Reporter. We got a treat for you. You all know this man by reputation, by name, and I'm sure you've seen his great work as an independent uh, media citizen journalist, whatever you want to call him. Just a tremendous researcher. Um, and his name, of course, James Corbett. The Corbett Report or CorbettReport.com. And I just want to introduce him by way of this very quickly. You know, a big issue over the last couple of months was, has been Pizzagate. If you go back and if you look at the Corbett Report at CorbettReport.com, it's uh, two T's, uh, 
in fact, the link is in the program description, but if you look at his work, at the investigative work product that he's done along with Sibel Edmonds, Wayne Madsen, and others, you will see that James Corbett, our guest right now, had been investigating this and had been identifying this and offering a great, rich investigative work product long before the word Pizzagate was ever known. And just uncovering and exposing the evil and deeds of darkness. This guy, to me, is the real deal. I, I like him a lot. James Corbett, Joe, I'm going to kick it to you. You can bring him on. Yeah, well, I want to just comment on um, one of the better YouTube videos I've ever seen, um, which uh, Mr. Corbett created was the, um, the cons- was it the title, The Conspiracy of 9-11 in Five Minutes? 9-11, The Conspiracy Theory. 9-11, A Conspiracy Theory. Folks, if you have not watched this video, it's five, five and a half minutes long. It is um, very good, and uh, I've been following it ever since I saw that video, and it's great to have you on on the show, Mr. Corbett. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and folks, I want to tell you, um, Mr. Corbett is traveling. He's making uh, a gracious, I mean, so gracious because he's actually talking to us from Japan, where it's 9.30 in the morning. Over there in Japan, we have, we've got a lot of listeners over in, in uh, Japan as well. So I appreciate you joining us on, uh, on uh, Well, to be clear, I'm not traveling. I live here. Why didn't I know that? I thought, I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought you were tra- Okay. Okay. I apologize. That's right. That's right. You know what? Never mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to blame it on age. Well, regardless, <laughs> let's get into content. Uh, you, your work that you've done is, is tremendous. Here we are, day three of the Trump presidency. Uh, Mr. Corbett, what, what do you, what do you, what do you focus on right now? What do you think? What's your, what's your kind of assessment of the landscape as we, the American landscape? Well, uh, to be fair, I come at this as an outsider. Obviously, I'm a Canadian. I live in Japan, so I can only view it from afar. But from this distance, it certainly looks chaotic, I think would be the word um, to use. Uh, no matter which side of whichever spectrum you might be on and whether or not you support this Trump presidency or not, I think everyone can agree that things are in chaos right now. And I argue that it's a generated chaos. In fact, I just wrote an article about, about this for the International Forecast, uh, Chaos Out of Order, because we've all heard of order out of chaos, the uh, 33rd degree Freemason victim, Ordo Abkeo, to the bring a new order. You know, you, you use chaos as a way to get people to want the new order. Well, in order to get people to that point, you have to generate the chaos. And I think we're in a, uh, a position of generated chaos right now, and that's part of what's happening right now. So we're seeing the complete meltdown of the international monetary order, the international financial order, the international um, political security order, and then domestically also breakdown of societal order, all happening at the same time. And it's, I don't know about what your perception of it is, but certainly from my where I'm sitting, things are getting crazier and crazier, and the craziness is actually increasing. The acceleration is happening right now. So I think this is all towards the installation of a new order. And you can't bring in a new order without getting rid of the old order. And that means all of the old verities and pieties of the previous order have to go, including Pax Americana, including the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency, including all of these things that we've just taken as the base way of understanding the world for our entire lifetimes are starting to uh, to be chipped away at right now. And uh, that's, I mean, it's a very worrying thing, but it can be a positive Thing because certainly we do, I think, want to transition off away from this old order, 
But we don't want the new world order that they're trying to bring in as a result of it. So it is the, I mean, it's a time when everything that we think we know is liquefying, and that can be very freeing, but it can also mean that there's a new order that they're going to try to impose very soon. Yeah, I, we totally agree, and yeah, that that's been that that's been a subject of ours for for quite some time. Now you've done so much great investigative work about so many things; it's hard to like pin anything down. I got a, a first question yeah, just based on, on what you said, James. The popular, the populist movement, and the election of Donald Trump is this a continuation of the globalist plan, or is this something that came out of left field from your? analysis well i don't subscribe to the grand unified conspiracy theory that everything is controlled by a couple of men in a room i think it's i mean there is there are certainly forces who have a great degree of control over what's happening but i don't think they control everything down to the micro level but they can certainly play off of societal factors in fact i think that's the primary way that people in positions of power do um, maintain and leverage their power is by playing on on things that are already happening and things that they can already use that really do exist that they can leverage. So if the uh, if there is a reaction against the, the the sort of globalism that they've been shoving down everyone's throat for the last few decades, then they'll try to find a way to use that reaction to their benefit. And again, it's not that there's one single power that directs all of this. I think there are different cliques that that war with each other to a certain extent, but they of course all want control of uh, you know. America Inc. or the uh, you know the, the World Order Inc. Um, so they're all none of them want to upset the apple cart, but they all want to do, to have control over that apple cart. So they might war with each other. So for example, we see Kissinger meeting personally with Trump on multiple occasions and coming out just a couple of weeks ago to say, "Hey guys, guess what? Don't don't expect Trump to follow through on all his campaign promises. I've been talking to him, and I think you know he's he's getting up to speed on things." So. We can see that some of the old cliques are circling around, and whatever kind of drain the swamp campaign rhetoric was being used was jettisoned immediately upon the election when Trump said, oh, uh, yes, the Clintons are a great family. I'd love to take advice from them, and all this sort of thing. So I think Trump supporters are going to be deeply disappointed, um, assuming that they face the reality of what's happening. It doesn't mean that... All is for naught, because I think the idea, the base of this, the political populism that you identify there, is a real phenomenon, and it, to, there are good aspects to that. There are, I mean, there needs to be a revolt against the order that, that they've been trying to impose on the world for the last few decades. It's just a question of who directs that, and in what way that energy gets released, and if it gets all shunted back into federal, you know, national politics and everyone, you know, let's all rally around the flag and rally around this president no matter what he does, then it will all have been for naught. But I think there's at least a chance to use this this energy, and if we direct it in the right way towards the right topics, towards people actually taking matters back into their own hands, their own life, finding ways to organize with each other in communities rather than looking to some political messiah to come down from on high in Washington, D.C., if we can do that, I think there is a chance to use this this moment of of kickback of of revolt in a positive way. You know, you mentioned um, you know the continuing um, push of this new world order to disrupt our to continue to disrupt our economy, taking the world off the world reserve current, taking the U.S. dollar off the world reserve currency status, um, continuing their push in in any way in any area they can uh, achieve it. What do we expect to see with this? 
continued growing political divide in this country uh, amongst the citizens. It seems like um, from the Obama administration, the divide really started. He continued to push it, push it, and not address it, and not unify the country, not attempt to unify the country. Now we have uh, what seems to be um, capitalists versus communists, uh, anarchists versus conservatives, and it seems like the the rhetoric's getting more intense and violent. The actions are becoming more violent. Do you see this trend continuing uh, throughout the near future? Well, I wish I didn't, but unfortunately, this is a process that feeds on itself, and it's very difficult to put the brakes on once it gets once the ball gets rolling. And the ball is definitely rolling, as you point out. I mean, every single possible divide is being played onto the maximum now, black and white, and the the difference between the sexes and uh, and sexual orientation, and all of this is being pushed on, and the divide, the wedge, is being driven further and further between people. Um, so that people, of course, identify their neighbor as the source of their problems rather than, you know, the institutions which have been put into place to rule over them. And that is the fundamental problem. It's been the fundamental problem throughout the entirety of human civilization. Uh, divide and conquer is a very, 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 very old principle that's been well established and well understood for thousands of years. And think of how much more refined that technique has become than it was, say, a couple of thousand years ago when it was first being worked out. So I think it's not an easy thing to even uh, unless it is explicitly identified and understood for what it is. It's extremely difficult to put the brakes on because certainly when someone pushes the extreme, you feel compelled as a human being to want to go the other way to resist against that. Uh, that's the obvious thing. So when people are pushing some obvious agenda down your throat about some ridiculous political correctness and pronouns and things and what you can and cannot say, as people know from Jordan Peterson's work in Canada, they're now trying to outlaw certain pronouns that can or cannot be used in the classroom and things like this. When people push kind of extremist nonsense down people's throats like that, the, the natural reaction is, okay, let's push against that, and that's where people's energies and times and attention, time and attention gets directed. And so what is the answer to that? The answer has to be stepping out of that. Clearly, people are being pushed into a dialectic. Choose this side or choose that side, but just choose a team and war with each other. And there has to be a way of finding, once again, community. I, I keep coming back to this because... I keep thinking of things, the, the, the situation we're in right now, I think there is parallels between the ways that the great powers are uh, aligning themselves right now and the way they were in the run-up to World War One, which is quite worrying. But economically and financially, there are parallels with the, uh, the, the, the Great Depression era, the Great Recession era of the late 20s, early 30s. And in that time, especially in the United States, uh, think about how rural a society it still was. There still were communities at that point. Think about that being transplanted into 2017, and think about the way that community would break down in an instant if there was a serious and fundamental disruption of the economic order. And uh, that worries me, because we're, we're already seeing chaos and violence and, and people at each other's throats. Uh, throw in a little bit of economic chaos, and uh, I, I don't know if there's a way to stop the civil war at that point. So I think the, the real focus has to be in the creation of community now while there's still the opportunity to do so, so that those community structures will see people through the uh, the turbulent times that are absolutely coming. No, I agree with you 100%. That's something we talk about in the show a lot. Um, in, in any type of societal collapse, whether it's economic or um, just a civil collapse, 
it will only uh, people who band together and form these communities will be in my opinion the only chance to survive these things you're not going to be able to do it alone uh you need people with different areas of expertise you need people um working together to to accomplish many things and without that um just on survival alone you know the odds are, are astronomically stacked against any individual or, or pair of people uh, who try to do that. Well, if if I can jump in here, uh, James, if I can ask you a question here. Obviously, you you talk a lot, and folks, we're ta- our guest is James Corbett, the Corbett Report, open source intelligence news. His website, CorbettReport.com, with two T's, linked off of HagmanReport.com, also in the program description. And I would highly recommend, of course, supporting James's work, uh, and, and please support uh, via his uh, his button there. Support his work via. Uh, Patreon or Patreon, um, right there. You can click on the button and, of course, uh, do that. But James, uh, uh, of all of the threats facing Americans today, from your perch outside of the the country, what do you see as the biggest threat internally? You, you mentioned economic. You mentioned, uh, of course, the 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 well, you know, the number of things. But what, what's what? What do you see taking place here? What will fracture first, in your view, based on your uh, recent research? It's, I mean, that's a, it's a good question. I understand why you ask it, but I don't know if it, if it's answerable because all of them are, are so thoroughly inter, intermixed that really, I mean, no matter whether the, uh, the disruption comes through economic, uh, disruption or monetary disruption or some sort of societal disruption, some sort of, you know, riots of, you know, left and versus right or whatever it is, or whether it comes from some sort of international incident, I, I, uh, I'm not sure that the first domino to fall is, it's particularly, um, you know, necessary to identify which one that will be because as soon as it falls, I think the others will fall with it in, in rapid order. And we also have to keep in mind that the, uh, the powers that shouldn't be always love to blame economic disruption on, on some foreign boogeyman in order to launch wars. Uh, this has happened throughout history. So I think, again, no matter what happens, it will all happen in short order. And that, again, it's very worrying because I do see the parallels leading um, up to what we saw in 1914. And it's very difficult to imagine a way forward from here that does not result in some form of warfare. But what warfare actually looks like in this day and age is really the big question because I can't imagine it will look anything like what we saw in previous wars. It will have to be something completely different and will probably be more obviously based on cyber warfare or financial warfare, trade warfare, um, which can be equally, if not even more devastating in the long run, especially to civilian populations. Think about how far we are removed from the idea in say, 18th century warfare, where people would go and take a picnic to watch a battlefield because you knew as a civilian bystander watching from a few miles distance, you're, you're fine, and it's, it's just two armies battling on a warfield. Think about World War I, World War II, suddenly civilians are being bombed, and it's, it's coming home. Now think in this current era where cyber warfare takes place and uh, you know, cyber terrorists or whatever are taking down electrical grids, Suddenly it is primarily civilian populations that are affected. So that's, that's my particular biggest worry, I think. Um, but again, in terms of which disruption comes first, I think I'm not even sure that's necessarily important. Um, I, I certainly do have my eye on the economic disruptions that are very, very possible. Uh, because I think that's one of the easiest and most straightforward levers of control. 
of the old power elite. Um, I mean, even if we were to take Trump seriously as a true and genuine independent threat to the establishment, this billionaire who has come down to, you know, lead the, the country into, into promised land of milk and honey, still the Federal Reserve has an incredible amount of control over the, the, the economy, not only of the United States, but the entire world. And if they start jacking up rates too quickly, they can they can absolutely suck the 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 money out of the the, the swamp, all of the, the 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 heroin basically that they've spiked in the punch bowl over the last eight nine years can be drawn up very quickly, and it can cause the the type of economic disruption that uh, no no Trump or anyone else would be able to do anything about if they get that ball rolling. So again, unfortunately, it's extremely easy to create chaos. And uh, they're they're always trying to position themselves to benefit from that chaos. You're absolutely right, um, James. If we can kind of switch gears here, I want to talk about the media. Now, I know you know you said you were in Japan, and um, do you see a lot of U.S. media? Do you make it a point to see it? Um, uh, I I pretty much only watch online media. I, we don't we have a television. We don't have it even hooked up, so uh, we don't really consume media in any other way. So what I watch is. Pro- Primarily American, Canadian, other types of English language media. And you've obviously seen the the mainstream media's coverage of Trump and the uh, the reason I ask is because I wanted to get your opinion on you know after he gave his inauguration speech, the Rachel Maddow and Chris Matthews said it was a dark um, and militant speech. They called it Hitlerian. Just the attacks that are feeding into uh, this political divide that we we talked about earlier. And I wanted to know how that differs from Japan and, and what perception you guys are getting there uh, as opposed to what's what's being told to the people here in the U.S. So so just to be clear, that's the same Chris Matthews who got his the thrill up his leg when mm-hmm. he saw Obama speak eight, eight years ago, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, how does it differ from, from Japanese media? Japanese, I mean, the Japanese societal context is so completely different because it... Um, it was uh Japan was called by one of the uh the administrators of the American administration here after World War II as a nation of children and unfortunately to a certain extent there is there is something to that it is very much a society where people are told what to do and generally will go along with it um and that means that there is a lot less societal friction here. There, you don't see a lot of r- riots and protests and police state kind of goons jumping around with their, their jackboots or anything. It's, it's a much, much um, safer, I suppose, in that sense. But of course, it does mean that people are easily, if not easily indoctrinated, at least will go along with whatever is societally expected. And that creates a situation where people, I mean, still, uh, there seems to be a lot of naive trust and faith in a lot of the media here. Um, and to the extent that people disbelieve what they're seeing in the media here, they'll generally keep that to themselves. So um, so it, it, it's a very different context, but um, it, it does mean that certain... Uh, certain narratives can be pushed quite a, quite a lot more easily than they can be pushed in a place with a more independent mindset like the United States, where at least people understand that they're getting they're getting the, a certain line, they're getting a certain view. When you tune into Rachel Maddow, you know what you're going to get. Um, whereas in Japan, I think people just assume that there is some sort of objective viewpoint that people can report from. And the reason I wanted to get into the media is something you said earlier about the. New World Order agenda, the globalist agenda that piggybacks off of real events, real things that are happening, 
uh, and it's not so much a you know top-down conspiracy controlled by you know one mind or one person. Um, and the reason I wanted to ask that is because here there's just been a huge disconnect. It seems like uh, many in the mainstream media have just completely stopped objectively reporting facts and now bring you the news with their own or their producer or writer's own um, twisted ideology into it. And it seems to be a growing trend that's just happened as of late since the fake news narrative came out and since so many um, people uh, came against Trump with with either lies or what they perceived to be the truth. And and there was some fact in there um, from Trump's own comments, but, I mean, it just seems like everything's being made up and then that made-up stories being given to the people, being given to news reporters to the point where it's almost like they believe it themselves to be true, regardless of the facts that are given. And I just wanted to kind of get an idea of what the international uh, perception right. of Trump was. Well, you identify an important point there, because we are absolutely, of, of the many transitions that we're undergoing, one of them is a fundamental transition in the nature of the media and people's relation to it. And in previous uh, generations, people would look to a Walter Cronkite or whatever to tell them that's the way it, that's the way it was. And people would generally... Um, would take that as the day the daily news of course we can't do that in today's context even if we wanted to because it has become so polarized so obviously propagandistic um now that that's a transition i think that's taking place in people's understanding of what media is and how it functions and i think it is necessary we're going from the naive belief that there is some sort of objective viewpoint that some angel on the clouds is going to report the daily, the daily news from. Uh, whereas, of course, we now know, for example, I mean, on Walter Cronkite specifically, he was, he was a committed globalist who said, uh, you know, if, if that makes me uh, a, a devil, then I'm happy to sit on the right hand of Satan. Ha ha ha. And things like this. I mean, that comes out, you know, decades later at the end of this person's lifetime when people have been listening to them as some sort of objective news point for their whole life or, you know, being the voice of uh, the owl in Bo- Bohemian Grove and the crazy rituals that go on there. So, we have to understand that there is no objective viewpoint. Even choosing what is or is not worthy to talk about on the news is itself coming from an ideological perspective. Now, unfortunately, people, I think, still believe in the idea of objectivity of media, but we're seeing this hyper-subjectivization of it, this hyper-partisan um, nature of, of reporting that's coming along. And so people are still caught in the mindset, okay, well, everything that comes from the media is true, except for those liars out there, those ones on the other side of the political spectrum for me. They're liars. The ones that I see are telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so it creates this hyper-partisanship within the society itself. Whereas I think what we need to do is break down that barrier and realize that everything that you are seeing is coming from an ideological perspective. And once you understand that, then you can set, separate out the facts that are being talked about from the perspective that those facts are being nested inside. And uh, once you do that, I think people can have a more healthy relationship to whatever media is. But unfortunately, again, just because of the technological advances that have been made, media has been becoming more and more ever-present in people's lives, intruding into people's innermost thoughts, to the point where people find it difficult these days to go outside the house without something plugged into their ears to to listen to. It's everywhere and always and constantly the voice in our ear. And uh, that's, I mean, that's worrying because, of course, that is 
the primary way that propaganda can be inserted. And we are losing that space within our own minds just to have quiet contemplation that would have been the norm uh, even a couple of generations ago. Um, James, we got about a minute and a half before the break. Um, after the break, I got some questions talking about the trade deals and the uh, a few other things. Can you talk about, we'll start here and pick up here on the other side, The what, your latest episode, Obama, A Legacy in the Ashes? Yes. Uh, well, Obama, what can you say about Obama that hasn't been said except for the, yes, uh, what I wanted to point out in that episode of my podcast was not just the lies themselves and the hypocrisy, which again is pretty easy to point out, um, but what it really means underlying the, the, the sort of Obama himself. I, I wanted to point out that it wasn't Obama as a person individually that was the source and font of all evil in the United States. It was what he represented and the, the interests that he fronted for. And since we now know through leaked emails that, oh yeah, the uh, the head of Citigroup actually picked his entire cabinet before he was even in office. He had it all picked out and he, he chose from the list that Citigroup provided for him to pick his cabinet. That shows you something more fundamental about the way power operates at the highest levels than we elected a president and now the president will lead us. That is the naive point of view. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, unfortunately, um, you know, what Trump brought to the table and the movement that got behind him, I do agree with. At the same time, I'm very hesitant. And many people seem to have just let go and accepted that Trump's the new president and everything is going to be you know, great and rainbows and unicorns. Well, we're we're and, being played in so many levels, you know. Right. And people are let their guard down and I think that's a dangerous place to be in. Um but when we come back, folks, you're listening to James Corbett at CorbettReport.com as well as James Corbett or Corbett Report on YouTube also. He'll be with us for the next segment. So when we come back we're gonna pick up right where we left off. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. What an honor it is to be talking with James Corbett of the Corbett Report. Um, CorbettReport.com. It's linked off of HagmanReport.com as well as it's in the program description and across all of our venues, Global Star, um, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, BTR as well as uh, YouTube. But folks, go to CorbettReport.com and become a member. Donate to his research. If you look at his, the totality of his, of his research, of Mr. Corbett's research, you'll find, uh, just a, a tremendous, uh, and informative research product. And I really, I, I would, man, I'll tell you what, um, what, what a, what a great asset he is. Before we get back to Mr. Corbett, I'm going to ask, I'm going to address, this is to all of business, all of the business owners out there. Let me ask you, are you hiring? 
Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates for that position you might have open? Well, folks, posting your job in one place is not enough to find quality candidates. No. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your jobs across all venues on all the top job sites, and now you can. Here's what we use. We we use and we've tried it out. It's worked wonders. ZipRecruiter.com. There you can post your job at 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city, in any industry, nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. And if I can use it, anyone can use it. No juggling of emails, no calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by many Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small business and medium-sized businesses. Right now, folks, and this is the great part, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. And we were talking with James Corbett from the Corbett Report, uh, CorbettReport.com, Corbett Report on YouTube. Before the break, we were talking about Obama. You have a, a post on your website and on YouTube, uh, A Legacy of Ashes. And before the break, you were talking about how it wasn't uh, that Obama was evil, that it was what he, uh, his ideology, what he believed is evil. And you talked about the control behind the uh, uh, city, Citibank picking his cabinet positions. How much of the Obama administration decisions were his own versus how many do you think were made for him already? Uh, that's, yeah, that's a very good question. I would imagine very few of them were Obama's own. And, uh, I think the vast majority of them came from those that he was connected to and connected with. And there are, I think, in any administration, there are centers of power, and I think that varies from administration to administration. I think it's quite obvious in the Bush era that it was not George W. Bush running the country. If anything, uh, it was his vice president, Dick Cheney, who had much more control over that administration. In the same way, I think, in the Reagan era, it was not that pre- power was uh, very much uh, in the, the presidential office. It was in the vice presidential office of George H.W. Bush. Um, and that he was running things like Iran-Contra. And I'm sure Reagan really wasn't involved in the nitty-gritty of that. I'm pretty sure he didn't get his fingers uh, dirty in all of that. I think that was George H.W. Bush running that. So in the Obama era, I think the history is still yet to be written and parsed. But um, I would imagine that it's more in places like uh, when Secretary of State Clinton was in the State Department. I'm sure that she had a lot of control over shaping the policy in Libya, for example, in Syria in its early stages, or, um, for example, Victoria Newland in the State Department uh, helping to puppeteer what the Maidan coup in the Ukraine, bringing the fascists into power there. Um, I think there's a lot of a, a lot of work that needs to be done to to uncover who was behind which particular policies and in what way they were advocated. But the idea that Obama was ruling over all of this, I think, is the most naive view of all. And I think the point really in creating, especially, I mean, of course, we're looking back at the Obama era because it's the end of the Obama era, so we need to understand that legacy. But I think, as always, the history is what's important. Can we learn from that for today? And it's important to look back at the crowds from 2008. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Chant, chanting in, in, in hypnotic union 
at, at the rapture of this Messiah that was being called a Messiah and Superman and he came from Krypton and all of this kind of nonsense that was floating around in the atmosphere at that time to see how powerful a delusion hope and change can be and how, how powerfully he tapped into that with his campaign slogans and all of that. The iconography was there uh, to make him into something that he was not, this messiah that was going to save people. And now I see it happening from the opposite perspective. I see it happening with Trump and people investing their identity in Trump. I get it. He says things that appeal to people and things that are good and things that go against the globalists. And look, the CIA is attacking him, all of this. Therefore, it means he's good. I just hope that people can look at the way that delusion has worked in the past and understand that it still has an effect on people today and to use that to at least, I mean, hey, don't believe James Corbett. Who is he? He's a nobody in Japan. What does he know about American politics? Fine, don't believe me. But just reserve a tiny place in your heart that you do not give over to identifying in the rapture of this new political messiah. Just reserve a tiny little bit of skepticism, a place for you to at least stand apart from that so that you don't give your identity over to it. Because once you do that, then you go along with anything that comes along. And I think uh, if you if you fall for anything, you'll stand for nothing. And I think that's the exact opposite of the place we want to be in. I think you're exactly right. Uh, I believe everybody needs to have a healthy skepticism of any administration since we've seen throughout history how the president, the office of the president, is used to continue to further the globalist and new world order agenda, and there's no reason to believe that it has been stopped dead in its tracks right now. I just believe that there's areas that Trump will be able to come out and and harp on against, but at the same time, um, like you mentioned with the Federal Reserve, there will be areas that are under the radar behind the scenes that they will you know move 10 steps forward with, and then when they get their other person in place, or if they need to, then they can go back and work on the things that they couldn't do right now. Which brings me to our, our next uh, point. We have two issues going on right now. The, the executive order Trump signed to uh, get the U.S. out of the TPP and what that means to countries on the uh, Pacific Rim, Asian Pacific Rim, and U.S.-China relations under Trump and the threat of war. If we can, let's start with the TPP. Yes, uh, a very interesting move, and obviously one that I think is for the best, because the TPP was a monstrosity crafted and created behind closed doors in, in unprecedented secrecy, not just secrecy, but total secrecy, to the point where even Congress uh, congressmen could not look at the bill as it was being drafted and negotiated. They had to go into a secret room in the bowels of the Congress, and you know they couldn't even take a notepad with them, and all of this kind of nonsense. Um, let alone the secrecy that was surrounding all of the, the different negotiation meetings where they had, you know, helicopters and people with uh, guns on the roof and all of this trying to make sure that nobody, nobody, nobody penetrated the secrecy of this agreement. And then when it was finally released, of course, it was hundreds and hundreds of pages of total nonsense legalese gibberish. But if you could sort your way through even a few of the, uh, the, the clauses, you would see that it was, again, a complete monstrosity that was created by and for the uh, corporate oligarchs um, to maintain their m- essentially monopolistic control over international trade. A free trade policy could be written on the back of a cocktail napkin. No, you don't. You don't uh, put tariffs on our goods. We won't put tariffs on yours. There you go. But no, of course that's not what this is. It's about exceptionally controlled trade, so that only the uh, the crony oligarchs could get involved in it. 
So, uh, scrapping the TPP is a great thing, I think, ultimately. But, uh, it's interesting to see the way that this will play out and what will happen as a result of the vacuum that's been created. Um, last December, um, uh, just last month, the Japanese parliament, the Diet, actually passed, ratified the TPP, which is extremely odd because with the U.S. out, it is a dead agreement. The TPP as written has to be ratified by all members, including, of course, the United States. So it is officially dead now that they're pulling out. But uh, Japan ratified it anyway, um, which is odd, unless we see that as a portent of things to come. Perhaps the creation of an alternate TPP without the U.S. All right, they won't join it. Well, who will? And guess who's stepping into the void? China. Um, in November, uh, Zero Hedge was reporting, with TPP dead, China officially launches its own Pacific free trade deal. So the ultimate effect of this might be, if if this really is an America first administration and they really do step away from these types of agreements, well, someone's going to fill in that void in, uh, in terms of the power relations in the Asia Pacific, and it's probably going to be China. And although that would have seemed almost unthinkable even a few years ago when there was active and open squabbles going on in, for example, the South China Sea, where, of course, there's still territorial disputes and what have you. But now we have the president, the new president of the Philippines, Duterte, is saying that China is the better, you know, they want to partner up with China and, you know, to hell with the U.S. and all this kind of rhetoric that's coming from Duterte. And then also we have even Australia saying, well, look, I mean, our interests are more served with going with China, and you have important uh, people in the Australian governments uh, starting to talk that way. Um, so there there really is a change that's taking place here. Um, barring some sort of drastic move, I don't think it'll happen overnight, but still, uh, I think we're going to see China stepping up more and more, and that will be a very interesting transition to make. Um, as unfortunately, as I've also documented, I did a podcast on China and the New World Order that showed that the rise of China over the last 15, 20 years as an economic powerhouse did not happen out of the blue or naturally or spontaneously. It's been a coordinated effort over the last four decades by the Rockefellers and their ilk, Kissinger yep. and Brzezinski and all of them, to try to make China into this superpower. So I don't think they're free from all of this game anyway, but at any rate, it'll be a different-looking Asia-Pacific. Yeah, and you mentioned the, the rise of China, Kissinger, Brzezinski, and so many others. Rockefeller wrote about the rise of Asia and the Asian markets um, decades ago and how uh, you know the U.S., with their superpower being the only superpower after the 90s, it was time to, they, they didn't come out and just say create a new enemy, but they talked about, you know, the emerging Asian market and how it could be better served for their interests here if they built that up to have another strong economy. And we just saw at the World Economic Summit um, just a few weeks back, the president of China talked about, uh, you know, if Trump's going to continue to do the America first thing, the nationalist thing, that he would step up and his country would step up to fill the the globalist role, if you will, and uh, apparently following suit with, you know, seeing these countries and, and China uh, step up and say, we'll take the TPP uh, agreement or a, a similar agreement. Um, if we can, let's talk about the, and you mentioned the China-U.S. Uh, relations. You know, Trump came out today. And we've seen this this big dust up over the um, the islands. The, the one China policy. Yeah, uh, there's a few things that the China and the U.S. seem to be button heads on. It seemed to be starting in the Obama administration, and now 
with Trump, you see the Chinese government ban the uh, inauguration streams. You know, you couldn't talk about the inauguration. You couldn't stream the inauguration. Many said it was because they weren't sure where Trump is and how U.S.-China relations would continue. Um, do you expect conflict, military conflict, between the U.S. and China over some of the things that we seem to be uh, butting heads over right now? Right. Uh, maybe it's wishful thinking of a sort on my part, but I don't. Ex- I don't see military confrontation as being what is ultimately uh, what would be best for these powers that shouldn't be and what they want anyway. Uh, I think what they want, from what it, from everything that I can see from the outside, it looks like they're trying to set up the 21st century equivalent of the Cold War, the 20th century Cold War, and in that context. Uh, just like the Soviet Union was largely a paper tiger built up by lend-lease and uh, tr- technology transfers and other um, other things that, that facilitated and made the Soviet Union what it was, uh, came from the West, and that's been amply documented by Anthony Sutton and, and other researchers. I think in the same way, we have to see China in that context. It's a largely paper dragon that's been constructed by the West um, to fill that boogeyman role in a lot of different ways. So I think that that seems to me the, the direction they want to take this in, which means that I don't think they are looking to actually go into hot military conflict. And if even if they did, I mean, China is, is certainly growing in terms of its capabilities, but it's still, if it came to outright open naval warfare, there's no chance they would stand if more than a... a batting of an eyelid against the U.S. Navy at this point. So I don't think that serves anyone's interests. It, it, the, the growing tension, however, serves everyone's interests. It rallies all of the domestic populations around the flags, and it creates the, uh, the never-ending need for more and more of the, the toys for big boys that the military co- contractors are more than happy to uh, provide at the cost of billions and billions of dollars. So we've seen, for example, military expenditures in the Asia-Pacific region increasing in recent years, and no sign that that trend's going to um, die down in the Trump era. So I think you're right to pick up on the rising tensions. I think that, to, honestly, I think that is going to be one of the – I think that's where they want to try to uh, take the Trump administration. All this Russian boogeyman stuff is craziness and easily demonstrable propaganda, and I think will be brushed under the rug in the coming months. But I think the, the coming along to take take that place will be the Chinese boogeyman, and we see that in terms of, uh, of course, uh, um, Trump accepting the phone call from the president of Taiwan, breaking decades of diplomatic protocol, breaking the the U.S. agreement on one China policy. That everyone says, okay, there's one China. We just won't say you know, what that means and who controls it, but we'll just, it's one China and we won't rock that boat. Well, it looks like Trump is getting ready to rock that boat. And as you say, there's also disputes in the South China Sea in terms of islands, man-made artificial islands that China has constructed and is ready to militarize that Rex Tillerson in his confirmation uh, hearings for Secretary of State, which he uh, incidentally has just been approved for, um, he was taught, he mentioned the idea that they will block access to those islands to China, which means a naval blockade, which means outright military confrontation. So either he was misspeaking or was speaking off the cuff in the fifth hour of rather grueling testimony, um, or they are really truly talking about going into hot naval warfare. Again, I don't, I don't think that's where, that would serve anyone's interests at this point. So I'm not looking at that as the imminent possibility, but trade warfare, 
certainly is a possibility. And uh, it'll be interesting to see the way this plays out, because as I say, Kissinger clearly meeting with Trump clearly has uh, the president's ear. Kissinger, also the person who literally wrote the book on China and about uh, the China's role in the New World Order and all of this, and his intimate part in helping construct that um, as a Rockefeller minion. It's, I mean, it's getting crazy, but um, I think that clearly we can see that uh, China is role, step, going to step into that boogeyman role, whether they like it or not. Uh, that's very well put in a, in a great um, breakdown of what's happening. And I agree that, you know, the boogeyman aspect of China, the the one part that concerns me, and I want to ask you if you had to guess or make a prediction here, do you see, um, we talked about the possibility for the U.S. economy to collapse and the American currency being taken off as the world reserve currency. Is that more plausible than a war with China is to see the switch from America as a world reserve currency if there was an economic situation, transfer that to China? Um, I guess the question is if America were to fall as a world reserve currency, would China be the one to pick that up? Uh, I think it would be a multilateral um, move rather than a unilateral move. And I think China is specifically positioned itself for that. Um, for the last eight years now, the uh, Chinese, uh, the, the People's Bank of China governor has been openly advocating for the IMF's special drawing rights to become the world reserve currency. And people have probably heard about the SDR, at least in passing, but it is essentially, it's not a currency per se. It's a type of claim on currency that central banks can use. Instead of holding dollars in their reserve accounts, they can hold these SDRs, and they can redeem them in any of previously four, now five currencies. It was the U.S. dollar and the euro and the yen and uh, the um, whichever one I'm forgetting <laughs> off the top of my head. Major world currency, oh, the British pound, of course, and uh, and just last October, the Chinese yuan was added to that basket after years of trying to campaign to get added to the basket. They were finally added to that basket. So now, China has a seat at the table, as it were, and that's the thing that 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 bugs me most about this because there are people who look at uh, you know China and Russia as these bulwarks against the NATO powers, and they're they're fighting against these globalists. Well, in a sense, but what are they fighting? For. And when you look at it, it's always they're fighting for, well, we want to see that the IMF table, or we want to create this alternate to the World Bank IMF system, and it'll be this, you know, this uh, BRICS, or it will be the, uh, the, the the new BRICS Bank, or the Asian Development, or uh, the, uh, the AIIB, or these types of things. And they're always run by people who are sometimes literally ex-IMF or ex-World uh, you know, ex Bank members. Uh, it's always the same people, and they're always trying to create these multilateral institutions that are basically just mirror images of the ones they're trying to replace and fighting against. So that no matter which side of the phony dialectic you're on, you're still going to get multilateral regional government of some sort or other. And I think that's that's the logic of this. So when the U- when and if the U.S. dollar does lose its its reserve currency status, world reserve currency, it will be replaced more than likely by a type of basket currency that's overseen by an institution like the IMF, which isn't, I mean, it's certainly no better for the average person. It's just going to be a different system of multilateral control. In fact, in some ways, even more distant from the average American, because at least you have some theoretical kind of interaction with the American government. What interaction do you have with the IMF? What role do you say over you know, what will happen with the, the pound or the yen or the euro? It just becomes this completely diffuse thing, which, of course, is tightly managed and controlled by very, very few people over whom you have no control. 
So it's 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 getting crazier, but people are walking into it because it seems like oh they're fighting against the NATO and U.S. you know American Empire kind of uh, system, and uh, I think it's just a false dialectic. Yeah, it's uh, uh, what you said about how they um, what are they fighting against? What are they fighting for? It's um, interesting to look and see, you know, like you said, the mirror images of each other, almost like they. Um, they want the same future that we have, and that's where they, they seem to want to go. On your website, uh, and again, folks, Corbett Report. Corbett Report. I'm sorry. See, you did that again. I apologize. James, we were doing that all day, and we apologize. Yeah. Um, interview 1245, you talk about the India demonetization disaster. This is something we talked about on, on our show here, um, about how the they went how they went about banning cash in India and how that was originated in Washington, D.C. And will that or something like that, a cashless society, happen here in the U.S.? Can you explain to us what's going on in India now? Very insightful, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, to be clear, they it's not a ban on cash per se. What they did was they took the 500 rupee note and the 1,000 rupee note and they said, as of midnight tonight, on the night that they announced this, it's going to be no longer legal tender. Over the next couple of months, you'll have a couple of months grace period to cash in your old notes and get new ones. So they've issued and they're printing new currency to replace that, those old notes. And the idea here is, um, probably much like in the United States and elsewhere, people keep a certain amount of cash that is off the table and they use it for their informal economy, black market, whatever you want to call it, um, which is a substantial part of the Indian economy because, of course, a lot of people are some of the poorest people on the planet who don't use banks and aren't a part of the banking system. All of this money is not purview to the government and the tax taxation and all of this. So they've made this big stink about black money in the Indian economy, as they call it, which is basically just uh, untaxed money. And so in order to combat this problem and all of the corruption that comes with it, well, let's do this, and we'll call in all the notes. So everyone has to go to the bank and trade it in for new notes, so now the government knows under your name that you have this much money. And uh, so that's what this was about. And this is important. 500 and 1,000 rupee notes make up something like 80% of the value of uh, cash in the Indian economy, and the Indian economy is something like 97 98% cash-based. Um, so it's a substantial amount of the Indian economy is going to have to tra- travel through the banks uh, over the, the coming months and has created a lot of chaos already, will continue to create chaos. Where this is going is, I think, towards facilitating, um, if not a completely cashless society, at least kick-starting that, that uh, uh, putting it into hyperspeed, the process of putting uh, India into a, uh, a more cashless system, cashless payment system. And the, you, you mentioned Washington's role in this. Uh, Norbert Herring has a great article on this, A Well-Kept Open Secret, Washington is Behind India's Brutal Experiment of Abolishing Most Cash, where he points out that just four weeks before the, the surprise announcement came, by the way, 500-1,000 rupee notes are no longer legal tender, U.S. aid established uh, with the Indian Finance Ministry something called Catalyst, Inclusive Cashless Payment Partnership, in which they wanted to basically throw into hypergear this uh, this uh, transfer into a, uh, a cashless payment system uh, economy. And uh, the CEO, for example, says, Catalyst's mission is to solve multiple coordination problems that have blocked the penetration of digital payments among merchants and low-income consumers. We look forward to creating a sustainable and replicable model and uh, oh, a holistic ecosystem approach and all of this kind of nonsense, feel-good, fuzzy uh, propaganda words that they love to throw around which is basically just the USAID 
helping the Indian government to, to go towards cashless payment systems. And I think India is once again being used, especially the poorest people in India are being used as a type of test subject. Can we transition people from completely cash-based into completely cashless? Can we do that? How do we do that? How do we get people in that? And I think, again, that, that program being announced four weeks before they start this demonetization campaign has to be significant and has to be viewed from that lens. And I do have a report up on my website called uh, The War on War on Cash? I, I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> Just type War on Cash into my search bar and you'll find it. And it's um, myself and the members of the corporate report community have assembled dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of stories from all around the world, literally dozens of countries, about different cashless payment systems and cashless ideas that are being promoted by various governments literally all around the world, in every nook and cranny of the world right now. Governments are advocating for cashless payments because ultimately this is the the crowning jewel in the in the hands of the powers that shouldn't be the idea of complete control over the economy and micromanaging and 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 having access to everything that goes on in that economy depends on being it being some sort of electronic payment system that can be monitored and controlled from a central place and that's the economy that they want to steer us into and it's only a question of how quickly they can do so and how best to engineer society to accept it once it comes um, it's very worrying. It should be very worrying to everyone, but I think a lot of people are perhaps asleep at the switch on this issue and don't understand why it's so important. So I'm putting together a podcast right now that will be hopefully released on my website at the end of this week, um, talking about India's demonetization and what it means for people around the world. Fantastic. Uh, James Corbett, I want to thank you so much for spending your time with us tonight. Folks, go to CorbettReport.com, Corbett Report on YouTube, and bookmark his site. Help him out, support what he's doing. He's a fantastic Become journalist. a member, yeah. Yeah. All right. James, thank you so much. You have a great evening. Great day. Thank you for having me on. Anytime. No sir. When we come back, Rabin, Rabin, Raymond Ibram, um, Ibram, his, his website is uh, RaybandIbram.com. He is uh, an author and a Middle East and Islamic specialist. We'll be right back. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for your belief and your trust in us. Boy, I'll tell you, we've got we've got a very very special guest with us this hour, Raymond Ibrahim. I don't know whether you've ever heard of him. I'm sure you have, unless you've been living under a rock, in which case you, you haven't. But uh, Raymond Ibrahim is uh, just a, a just a prolific uh, author. He is a uh, he's a specialist, really, in Middle Eastern affairs. Uh, you know, I'm going to let him tell you about himself, as opposed to me uh, telling you. But I, look, he's got a couple of books such as Crucified Again, Exposing Islam's New War on Christians. That was back in 2013, and it's still relevant, and even more so today, and the Al-Qaeda reader back in 2007, and his writings and translations and observations have appeared in many, many uh, venues, New York Times and, and uh, CNN, LA Times, and I can go on and on and on, but very widely published and very well known. Uh, Joe, I'm going to kick it over to you to bring him on. Yeah, again, Raymond Ibrahim is our guest. Uh, Raymond, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report. Thank you. Happy to be with you. Great to have you. You're the author of uh, a few books, 
Crucified Again, Exposing Islam's New War on Christians. That was released in 2013 in the Al-Qaeda Reader. And you've been uh, showcased on a number of publications. It would take me probably the rest of the segment to read through them. Um, where do you want to start tonight? Uh, we have a lot going on between uh, with Syria, with Iran, uh, a lot of uh, rhetoric you know, coming out of the administration that they're going to eviscerate the Islamic terrorism, something we have not seen uh, talked about in the Obama administration, and at the same time, you know, all the drone strikes. There's so much going on between uh, with Islam and, and the nations in the Middle East and tension um, due to terrorism. Um, where do you want to start? You know, I usually like to start off uh, with a little history uh, to show us and to bring us up to speed, because I think a lot of people think that the issues that you just uh, touched upon, amongst many others, are, you know, I mean, they're definitely the issues, but people think that it all starts there, or maybe it goes back just a little bit. In fact, so I like to start from the beginning in order that we have the most comprehensive understanding of what we're dealing with. So really, the story starts about almost 1,400 years ago, when a uh, caravan trader named Muhammad reportedly got a message from Allah. And of course, I'm not going to go into that whole long story, but the point here is that... <clears throat> And, um, you know, I can actually connect this to something else I'm doing. You were mentioning what I'm doing in the books I've written. The current book that I'm actually working on is a military history <clears throat> between Islam and Christendom. And then, of course, after a while, Christendom becomes what we call the West. And uh, what's so eye-opening to me, and this is the reason I want to, I'm writing this book, I want to bring it out, is to show you all the many parallels of all the things that you're seeing today whether it's ISIS or you know, Al-Qaeda or Muslim mobs, Muslim rapists in Europe, Muslim persecution of Christians, the bombing of churches, all this sort of thing as a 1,400-year pedigree, very well documented. And it's and so this is what I'm actually working on right now, this book to bring it up and to show it to you. So this is what I mean by history. And, uh, you know, before we go further, we need to remember that this the conflicts that we're dealing with right now, these don't start recently. These aren't a product of grievances, as we've often been told. They're not a product of the creation of Israel. They're not a product of the war in Iraq, etc. They're not a product because uh, someone uh, drew a cartoon about Muhammad. They go back for 1,400 years. They were unprovoked. They are based 100% on a religious worldview that makes the other, the non-Muslim, the so-called infidel, a hated enemy who has to, when Muslims can, and that's another missing uh, ingredient, when Muslims can, they are supposed to go on the offensive and do all this sorts of thing, which is what the history book is about. You see mass movements. It's not just a terrorist group. It's not just underground funding for terrorists or, uh, you know, um, under or secretive clandestine activities. It was mass movements back then. You're not seeing that so much now, of course, because most Muslim nations are can't do that sort of thing. And so that's uh, just a, a, a preface to what we'll be talking about to keep in mind that this is a long and old story that is still ongoing. And while we see different manifestations um, in the current events, it's the same exact animus that animated the Muslims of the olden times. It's the same one that's animating um, their descendants right now. Okay. And and thanks for that question. That, that, uh Contextual background. Right? We really appreciate that, and, and the history that, that that you, the foundation that you laid. Most people, at least here, uh, from my experience, 
their their first experience exposure to Islam was on 9/11, and uh, uh, even though, uh, of course, you know, it, it, we we've seen the uh, we we saw the rise of of Islam throughout the 20, uh, 20th century, but another twenty first or twentieth century. But nonetheless, my question to you is this simple, very simple question, uh, based on your experience, your knowledge: Is Islam I'm going to come right and ask you, is Islam compatible with our representative republic? Can, can, um, well, I'll just, I'll just throw that question out there. Can Muslims coexist here in the United States, um, advocating Sharia law and, uh, coexisting here, here in, the, in the U.S.? Islamic Sharia law is 100% antithetical to the U.S. Constitution and other forms of, uh, liberal democracies and so forth. You have to understand, um, <clears throat> Islamic Sharia, first of all, the word Sharia, which has become very popular in recent times, what it ultimately means is it means the way, the road. And so in Arabic, if I, if I was to say the streets, if I'm walking on the street, <coughs> excuse me, it's called Shara, and it comes from Sharia, okay? Um, <clears throat> so the Sharia is this thing that Muslims derive from their sacred scriptures, primarily the Quran, and what's called the hadith, which basically records and documents the words and deeds of Muhammad, who in Islam is considered the most perfect man. You're supposed to emulate him. That's where we get the word sunnah. That's another important word. You hear of Sunnis and Shias. Sunnis, who make up for about 90% of the Muslim world, what their name signifies is they are the ones who are trying to pattern their lives after Muhammad's words and deeds. So you have these two sources, the Quran and the sunnah of Muhammad. And if you look at what the Quran teaches, and especially what the Sunnah or the example of the Prophet uh, shows, you will find any number of things that are 100% contradictory to uh, the U.S. Constitution. There is no religious freedom. If you're born to a Muslim father, you are, and you try to leave the religion, uh, you either become an atheist or if you want to convert to Christianity or whatever. If you try to break away, especially openly, you can be executed. And that's actually, that traces to the words of Muhammad himself, who said verbatim, whoever tries to leave the religion, kill him. Um, you cannot have freedom of worship. Churches, as you probably know, all around the Islamic world are banned, are bombed, are burned in places where they're not uh, fully banned or where you have tolerant governments. Women are essentially chattel compared to men. There is no sexual equality whatsoever. Uh, you know, you can go on and on with, with these things. Now, the problem is, as I pointed out, these are derived from the Quran, which is Muslims believe to be the absolute literal verbatim word of Allah, much more so than uh, most Christians see the Bible. My, Christians will tell you the Bible is inspired. It is the word of God, but it's inspired, written by men, etc. To Muslims, no, the very, every alphabet, every word written in the Quran is verbatim, literal, you have to accept it, and so forth. And they all teach things that just do not, are not compatible with what we're talking about. And so, of course, to answer your question, that's, that's a lengthy way to give it to you, but, um, the long and short of it is no, 100% not. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think everyone really understands that we, we've got what I like to, I believe is one of the most educated and, uh, well-versed audiences in the world. But, uh, I just want to get a couple of foundational points or wanted to get that, that foundation set. Um, uh, here we are in 2017, um, engaged in what I see as a battle that, well, on your website, and folks, you can go to, uh, 
RaymondIbrahim.com. It's linked on our program description, but it's also linked on HagmanReport.com. Uh, you wrote a very interesting article, Seize Saudi Oil Solve World Problems. We're going to get into that in a second, but before we get into that itself, I want to ask you something a little bit, well, to preface that, um, and kind of work backwards from present day. The Obama regime, I, I don't even want to call it an administration, but, but we saw, to me anyway, what I saw was this great mass infiltration of Muslims, of, of the, um, Muslim agenda into our, into our system, our society, our government, uh, various departments within our government. How hobbled have we become and how subjugated have we become to the Muslim agenda through Obama and his predecessor, George W. Bush? Very much so. And, you know, this goes to an important point that I often try to make, which is inasmuch as the Muslim world and especially Islamic doctrines, the sort that I've touched upon before, are intrinsically dangerous to us, to the non-Muslim world, yeah, you have to remember and keep in mind, in contrast to the, that historical, that long epic of history, the millennial history that I was referring to of Muslims invading Europe, taking over lands, and so forth, the animus still exists today within the Islamic world, but what's missing is the capacity. The Islamic world, as of today, is a very weak entity. In other words, if the West, if just maybe a couple of Western countries, or the USA alone, wanted to, if the West, for instance, had the world view, the hostile world view that Islam teaches and which dichotomizes the world between us, the believers, and the infidel, the Islamic world would be done for. And so, in the context of what you're saying is that, yeah, Islam has become a threat because, precisely because of the policies of people like Obama and like before him, George W. Bush, and like so many European leaders, they are the ones who enable this terror threat. A simple Simple point of view. We've already examined and discussed some Islamic doctrines. There's a, there's a hostility that's ingrained. The common sense, if you looked at Europeans from centuries before, when that ongoing jihad for Europe was going on, they wouldn't allow a Muslim to come and live amongst them, or at least large numbers of them, because they understood what was, what, what the price was. If you go to Spain, and, you know, we're often reminded it was so terrible, 1492, the um, eviction of the Muslims and the Jews, out of Spain and so forth, and it, of course, it looks so um, intolerant and uh, you know xenophobic from our era. What's missing from that analysis is that those Muslims who were living there were operating against the crown, were operating against Christian society, were trying to subvert it, were helping the Ottomans, for instance, and so forth. And so they concluded the only way is we have to drive them out. And, you know, that may be ugly, but that is history, and that's what people end up doing in order for 100% safety. So when you see um, when you know and you hear ISIS, for instance, boasting that it's going to put its infiltrators amongst the refugees and that they're going to terrorize Europe and or America, and you see it happening because, sure, not all of those who are coming are terrorists. I don't believe that at all, or even the majority, but you know they're in there. And so if you open the door, they're going to come in amongst them. And then sure enough, we've seen all the terror attacks in uh, Nice, France, all several in Germany, um, in the United States, uh, Orlando, and so forth. San Bernardino, I believe, was was one of them, was a, uh, an immigrant, I believe, from Pakistan. Anyway, so you know there's a hostility, and then you let them in, and then terrorism happens. And so that just shows you it's not it's not 
that they can do it. Yeah, the animus and the hostility is there. It's the U.S. policies, Western policies, European policies that's empowering them to come and do that. And that's, I think, what a lot of people who may understand what we're talking about and be sympathetic to what we're saying seem to forget. You know, the threat is not that as intrinsic at this point. The, the threat is the, the first layer of trouble is actually here. It's our own leaders. It's our own policies. They're the ones that enable what is otherwise a very weak Islam to do what it's doing. And we know uh, leaders are not stupid. And then that begs the question, why would they allow this? If they really had an allegiance to their own country and to the safety of their own country, what would make yeah, what, them do this rationale? unless they're not allegiant, unless yeah. they have no allegiance to this country and they have allegiance to interest uh, at a much higher level, which would then, then be treason? I, I guess, um, why do they do this and how do they get away with it? Well, the how they get away with it is interesting to me because it's a, it's a cultural issue. Um, you know, over the decades, with the concepts of multiculturalism and, and all these sort of liberal isms that have come into American society and proliferated immensely, you've got a, a worldview or a mentality amongst your average American now, which is very, um, you know, tolerant isn't even, even the word, uh, you know, just very, the idea of what we're talking about, what I'm saying, I'm sure it makes the skin on some people crawl to hear what I'm saying, irrespective of if it's true or not. Because we're taught that all religions are equal, all peoples are the same, and so to come and pinpoint one religion to show it as bad and so forth, this is so, I think, become unintelligible to many people, especially the younger generations, that someone like Obama can come up and despite all the evidence that we're discussing of Islam saying X, Y, and Z, and then Islam doing X, Y, and Z, terrorism, on U.S. soil, all he has to do is come out and say, no, you know, it's terrible, that's not who we are, we don't judge people by religion, and most people will immediately acquiesce to that kind of thinking, regardless of how uh, grounded it is in reason and logic. So that's how, that's the why they do it. As for how, I think there's, um, you know, you have various levels of operatives in there. At the great mass, you have what's called the useful idiots, of course, and they're the ones that I was referring to, who have to some degree become so indoctrinated in this sort of multicultural view that the very idea to say there's something wrong with one particular group of people or religion specifically is anathema to them. But then you have those who I think know exactly what they're doing and they know, and as you indicated, they, they are treasonous, but they have their interests, whether it's for money or whatever the case may be, whatever allegiances they have and alliances and whatever, however it works for them. So I think it's a, a big combination thereof. All right. If I can ask you a question, and, and none of folks, none of this is scripted. Our guest, of course, is Raymond Ibrahim. His website linked off of HagmanReport.com. It's RaymondIbrahim.com. What a fantastic source of knowledge at that location, at that website. But let me ask you a question, sir. Day three, Trump administration, new president, new day, new attitude. If you were put in charge of handling terrorism of you know handling uh, the the fight that is being if you're put in charge of, of the security of America as it relates to Islamic terrorism what would, what would you do what would you what, what policies would you roll out and, uh, or suggest to, to have roll out uh, to be rolled out well the first one would be to essentially and I'm assuming Trump will do this uh, revoke essentially what Obama did about eight years ago which is he essentially expunged the intelligence community's knowledge of Islam and its inner workings 
by literally expunging the words Islam and Jihad and Sharia from the uh, intelligence manuals for the intelligence community so that if you are part of the intelligence community and a young cadet who comes in and so forth, ISIS to you is absolutely no different than just a group of criminals. They have no ideological underpinning. Um, yeah, they may talk about Islam and so forth, but this is not jihad. Jihad, we know, is a wonderful thing. Jihad is about fighting against your own vices and trying to be a good, noble person. Uh, that's actually what a lot of people have been uh, fed. So I'm not, I don't know how uh, pervasive that sort of thing has become in the intelligence community, but for, for starters, at least bring the truth out, bring the relevant books and the texts and the knowledge out, regardless of how politically incorrect it may be. Uh, so that's definitely the first step. As far as the other, you know, it's a very, it's a large question you're asking. I mean, there's domestic uh, implications, foreign policies that one can pursue. Um, as far as the immediate security of the United States, we definitely have to look into this refugee issue. The thing for me about the refugee, which I've never understood, and I've, it's another capitulation from the West and or another way that proves that this isn't about, certainly not about a humanitarian crisis, it's about an agenda that if you want to use the word global elite, the, you know, the, the NWO or whatever the case may be, are all working in together, is uh, instead of who, you know, supposedly the refugees are all pouring out. Why? Because of ISIS. That's the narrative. ISIS has come in, they're terrorizing, they're doing this and that, and so now we've got millions of people migrating. We have to be humanitarian, let them in. Well, as Russian President Putin once said, and I'm in complete agreement with him, he was at the United Nations, he said, the solution isn't to keep opening our doors, the solution is to go take the source out, the, pro the source of the problem. And if the problem is ISIS, then why aren't we taking them out? So all these people can go back to their own homes, where they actually want to be. True refugees don't want to leave. They actually would prefer to be back in their own homes, the true refugees, not the ones, not the many ones that are coming in, of course, on a pretext, just because what for whatever purpose, whether it's... Uh, you know, just for their own gain or whether they have terrorist inclinations and so forth. So for starters, and I think this is what um, Trump has said, he's going to essentially obliterate ISIS, so I would definitely push for that and, and let's see that happen. And then there goes your refugee crisis for starters. And while it continues, you know, there's this whole issue, again, the refugee crisis is supposedly we are, we need to act humanitarian. So I'm all for that, but why don't we actually help those who really are being persecuted? For instance, the Christians of the Middle East. Um, and it's amazing because in reality, if you look at it, ISIS for whatever it's doing, and, I, and of course ISIS will kill other Muslims, especially the wrong kind, Shia, Druze, whatever, but if, if ISIS doesn't go around bombing Sunni mosques. ISIS doesn't go around enslaving Sunni women. It doesn't go around demanding jizya from Sunnis. And it just so happens to be that about 99% of those who have entered into the United States are Sunni Muslims. They're from the same exact sect of ISIS. They're not being persecuted in that, in the sense that, let's say, Christians are. And yet you find that there's a huge, under Obama, um, a huge disparity, disparity between how many Sunni Muslims have come in, 99%, compared to less than half of a percent of Christians from Syria. In Syria, the Christians are at least 10%, and yet only half of them have been brought in. So the point here is if you want to be humanitarian, I'm fine with for that. Well, why don't we just take the Christians? They're the ones who are actually being slaughtered and being persecuted and being killed. And when they come here, they tend to assimilate because of the common Christian background of the United States. And they tend to be more loyal. 
you, how many times Muslims come in and you find out there are moles working in the government, they're trying to subvert. Even in the, even in the refugee camps, I was just reading about how Muslim translators are working it so that the few Christian refugees who are, of course, being persecuted in the refugee camps itself, imagine that. Refugees who are supposed to feel bad for are persecuting other people just because they're not of their own religion. And the translators are mixing it so that the Christians don't are eventually get kicked out and then sent back to their own nations where they're again attacked. So that's another policy that one can do. If you want to help humans, help the ones hungry. In fact, this isn't unprecedented what I'm saying. Hungary is doing that exactly. And I think Poland and Slovenia, they've at least said, let's do that. And I, I agree with them. So those, those there's some initial ideas. Yeah, you talked about a number, you, you mentioned a number of important points. One, the percentage of uh, Christians versus Muslims being brought into the U.S. is, is completely disproportionate. And you uh, hit those numbers accurately. Very few people really get into those, um, you know, less than 1% Christian. And then two, the fact that many of the refugees aren't actually refugees by definition. You know, the war-torn areas in, in Syria, yes, but when you have um, people coming from all nations, whether, uh, you know, where there's no conflict, uh, where things are even good in their country, um, to some degree, coming over, that's not really a refugee. Like you said, refugees are people who would welcome going home um, and or assimilating to the culture that they've they've come into but you you talk we have a few minutes before the break so i just want to because uh, this is going to be a, a long answer i think you talk about the hostilities between and territorial conquest between the uh, muslims and christians historically and you say that most of the muslim world rests atop conquered christian territory and most people are unaware of it and that there is currently a writing in a new military history book on this theme could you get into um, if we could go back to the historical uh, roots of the the disputes between the Muslim world and the rest of the world and how we got to where we are today. Oh, absolutely. That's my specialty. That's my uh, that's what I thrive on. That's what I've been working on lately in, in this book. And, uh, you know, as you pointed out, how many people understand that in the 7th century when Islam came into being in Arabia, uh, if you took the entire Christian world, the Christianity had been around now for over 600 years, it had actually been the religion of the empire for almost for about 300 years, meaning it was widespread and had permeated almost every aspect of the ancient, definitely Roman world. And if you took all that land, the Islamic conquest in the seventh century that spread out ended up seizing more than two thirds of that land. And so, how many people understand that what we today casually refer to as the Muslim world or the Middle East? You know, nations like Algeria and Tunisia and Morocco and Libya and Egypt and Syria and, and parts of Iraq and, of course, Turkey and so forth, all of that wasn't just Christian. It was actually the original Christian empire. That was where the heart of Christendom was. If you look at the five centers of Christendom, the original apostolic sees, one of them was Rome, and that's the only one that didn't get conquered. Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, Constantinople were all taken by the sword of Islam with a lot of bloodshed. And, uh, you know, yet today we sit around nonchalantly talking about the Muslim world as if it just, uh, you know, happened to come about, spread into that area. That's all stolen land. The, the indigenous Christians themselves still exist, including, for example, the Copts of Egypt and, uh, you know, the Assyrians, uh, Chaldeans and so forth in Mesopotamia. And they're still being persecuted just like they were. Uh, you know, the, the records that you see of what's happening today and you compare it to what happens as recorded by Muslim historians, same thing. 
the enslavement, the butchery, the, the bombing or, or back then burning of churches and so forth. So I would, I would very much welcome to continue. I know we have a, a break, but I'd like to continue on this theme very much. But I'd like people to go away with two-thirds of what was once the Christian world was seized by bloodshed from the Islamic world. Some of it was liberated, Spain, for instance, um, the Balkans from the Ottoman conquests, Greece and so forth, Hungary. They were also conquered territories, and now they got liberated. Even Russia, we forget. Moscow was under the Tatar yoke, which was actually Muslim at that point, and doing the same sorts of things. Wow. Uh, folks, our guest, we're so lucky to have him, Raymond Ibrahim. His website, of course, of the same name, Ray- RaymondIbrahim.com. That's, a, that's Raymond, I-B-R-A-H-I-M. Right. I B R A H I M. I mean, he, he is the go-to man. Uh, the, he's the expert on uh, Islamic affairs, terrorism, and and such. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, and when we come back, the, we're going to pick up right where we left yes, off because we um, I think it's real important that we go over some of this history. And you know, today we hear how Israel, you know, is stealing land. They stole the land. They're oh. uh, a country that shouldn't be there. And and when you hear the history of this. As um, Mr. Ibrahim just said, that two-thirds of the Muslim world is on stolen territory. If you, I mean, if we're going to look at history as, as our guideline, and that's a, a very interesting fact, and we're going to expand on that when we come back after these short messages. Stay with us. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't get much better than our current guest, Raymond Ibrahim. His website, RaymondIbrahim.com. Just go to HagmanReport.com. For, under the show description for today, his website is linked off of HagmanReport.com. You know, this gentleman uh, resigned from his positions, various positions he held, uh, to focus exclusively on researching and writing and is currently a Shulman Fellow in the, at the David Horowitz Freedom Center. A Judith uh, Friedman Rosen Writing Fellow, Middle East Forum, and the Hoover Institution Media Fellow, um, and and so many other things. And of course, you can find his work on uh, across all media venues. And um, he he is to, to me the go-to man for all things uh, Middle East Islamic related, and that, that's. That's something. I mean, to me, we've had so many guests on, but but this gentleman here knows what he's talking about. Before we get back with him, I just want to ask everyone, are you prepared? Are you prepared for a power outage? Are you prepared? It's something as simple as having batteries. You know something? I, I This weekend, and this is a true story, I went to use a flashlight. Of course, the batteries were dead. You know how it goes, guys, right? And... Thankfully, I have rechargeable batteries. Well, let me tell you about a, a little device called the G-Mag. Okay, this, this is probably, well, not probably, this is the, the greatest little device ever, the G-Mag Power Cell. It's from Greenovative. Just go to HagmanReport.com, click on the link to Greenovative. Greenovative is a small company in Florida. They created the GMAG power cell. It produces electricity simply by adding salt water to the unit. You don't need anything else, a hand crank or the sun or anything like that. It's it's a battery recharger. It recharges rechargeable batteries. Simple as that. Um, it, it 
it'll charge six uh, AA or AAA rechargeable batteries in about three hours. It, they use these magnesium power pucks as a power source along with salt water. You don't need, again, you don't need the sun, you don't need wind or a hand crank or anything like that. Just ordinary table salt, about two teaspoons and a little water. You shake it for a few seconds and the unit instantly makes electricity. This is a fantastic device. It's super affordable. It's lightweight, about eight ounces. It's extremely durable. It's EMP proof and environmentally friendly. It'll provide convenient and safe power for recharging your AA or AAA batteries off the grid or when other power sources are unavailable. It, the unit itself has an indefinite shelf life and will charge an unlimited number of batteries with uh, just by simply replacing the power pucks. And you know what? I don't want to be sound gross or whatever, but it, even if you don't have any salt, this will run on urine, okay? So if you're alive, you have power. It's got no, no, no moving parts, and it, it, it's just it, it's a fantastic unit. Unit you just have to see it and experience it. We put it through its paces. We love it, and uh, I'll, I'll just tell you, it's it's the greatest little device I've ever seen for recharging batteries. Go to greenevative.com. That's greenevative.com, and and perhaps, 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 if you use the coupon code Hagman. Well, let's see what happens. Let's see if uh, just let's see if they'll give you the special. That's greenevative.com. Greenevative.com. I apologize for that little uncertainty there. I was reading from a uh, older copy. Joe, I'm going to kick it over to you to bring our guest back on here. Our guest is author Raymond Ibram, and uh, you can go to RaymondIbram.com. That's Raymond I B R A H I M. And check out his books and check out his his blog there. Before the break, we were talking about um, the historical conflicts between uh, the Muslims and the Christian world. And um, you were talking about how two-thirds of the uh, now Muslim countries were once Christian uh, territories. And let's pick yeah. up right where we left off. I'd love to. You know, what I'd like to do now is actually give you kind of a, a, a quick historical outline of what Christendom actually did have to deal with for about 1,200 years until it won, including the battles that, I mean, these were massive, highly decisive, some of them were considered the most decisive battles in world history. So I'll start with, in 636, there was the battle on the Yarmouk River in Syria. And um, four years before that, or I'm sorry, six years before that, Muhammad started to incite his followers to go and attack the Byzantine Empire. At the time, the Byzantine, the Byzantine Empire was essentially the Eastern Roman Empire that had converted to Christianity. And um, so even the Byzantines never called themselves Byzantines. They called themselves Romans. And the Arabs, the Arabs called them Romans in all the sources. It's just, I think, an interesting point to keep in mind. But they were thoroughly Christian. And even in the Quran, you have what's called the Battle of Tabuk. And uh, that's one of the final battles that Muhammad um, sent some of his jihadis to go at. And Tabuk was an area where he, they hoped to actually intercept Byzantine warriors and kill them and so forth. And what's interesting is, <clears throat> even in this battle, or before this battle, Muhammad incited <laughs> incited his followers by telling them, and we have records of this in the, in the Islamic sources saying, don't you want to have for slaves these beautiful blonde-haired and green-eyed people? And this is an Islamic text. It has this. Muhammad inciting people by saying this. And um, and the reason I bring this up is because you see this theme, it's going to play over and over again. I'll bring it up as we go along with history. 
A long story short, after Muhammad died in 632, the Muslims started pouring out of, or the Arabs poured out of Arabia, Muslims, and started attacking the Byzantine Empire, as well as the Persian Empire at the time. But, and in 636, at the banks of the Yarmouk in Syria, they had a crushing victory over Byzantium, and the result of that was that they ended up, two years later, they took Jerusalem. They, they actually laid siege to Jerusalem, and it was another two-year bloody siege. They ended up taking it. And then they went west into Egypt. Egypt was also under Byzantium at the time. It was a Christian nation. Um, like I said, Alexandria was was vying with Rome for ecclesiastical authority. It's considered one of the, all these early Christian giants, Origen, Clement, Athanasius, and so forth, that you know from you know the fathers of church history come from Egypt. And um, so Islam entered there, and right at 640, they took Alexandria. And then they just went on and on and on. They traveled westward. I call it Islam's manifest destiny, which is a lot more bloody than the American manifest destiny, all the way until they got to uh, modern-day Morocco. And if you read the sources, and I'm bringing these out in the book, especially the Arabic sources, what I like about Muslim Arabic sources is they're very honest. You know, it's unlike the, um, you know, the, it's unlike Muslims trying to pull the wool over your eyes today and tell you Islam's peace. They very manner, matter-of-factly say, oh, yes, and this, uh, you know, this jihadi warlord went into here and he made 50,000 slaves and took him back to, uh, you know, Damascus where the caliphate was. And then they went here and took 60,000 slaves and, you know, they made great carnage and they burned the city down and so forth. And so that was the history. And again, all that northern part, not just Egypt, you know, um, St. Augustine, another, you know, probably the foremost uh, Christian theologian that uh, Western Christendom. Uh, based a lot of its theology on was from Hippo, which is modern-day Algeria. So that, too, was taken, and today we nonchalantly think of Algeria as just a Muslim nation. And that went on, and that was the repercussions of the Battle of Yarmouk. And then it, it continued going. Um, the, the great prize was, of course, Constantinople, and that was all the early Islamic sources talk about we have to take Constantinople, because if you go back in that time, Constantinople was a very Christian empire, and it Islam very much defined itself uh, in contradistinction to Christianity. A lot of people don't know that. You know, after they took over the greater Syria and Jerusalem, one of the first mosques that was built, um, just in around 670, uh, the, the main inscription on it is, God has no son. And so, and so you can see it was always trying to prove a point um, to the Christian world. And so they went into, they couldn't, they couldn't, you know, I call it the buck stops here. They couldn't get into uh, Constantinople, especially after the, there was a huge siege in the year 717. Um, the Muslim forces went and went for a year. Lots of people died. The, Mar the Muslims in front of the walls of Constantinople were reduced to eating their own feces. This is from their own accounts because of the winter and starvation. They died of disease. They lost, etc., etc. And, of course, the western gate was closed at the Battle of Tours in uh, 732. So you can see the siege of Constantinople and, and Tours are... Uh, contemporary, and uh, but people think it ends there. It doesn't because then after the Battle of Tours, you Muslims overrun Spain, of course, and Spain becomes part of the Caliphate. And it, it was, of course, a Christian nation. It was the Visigoths who had embraced Christianity centuries earlier. And uh, a great book to read, by the way, is if you if, you're, if you don't know it, um, the myth, the Andalusian myth, I believe. It's a new book that's come out by a professor um, Dario. I, I forget his complete name. It's an excellent book. You just put the myth of the Andalusian myth in Amazon. You'll see it. 
Um, anyway, and then the Mediterranean, and this is actually something most people also don't know. The Dark Ages, in my opinion, and uh, I didn't originate this, uh, you know, a French scholar about a century ago, it's called, his last name was Perrin, the Perrin thesis, if you've heard of it, um, came up with the idea that the Dark Ages actually came about thanks to the Muslim world because they completely severed Western Europe from, uh, you know, the, the classic world, the Mediterranean, which was, it was all one world. Remember that two-thirds of Christendom was gone forever, and they couldn't even sail on, on the Mediterranean. It was just a nest of pirates, Muslim pirates. How many people know that in the year 846, the Vatican was actually raided and plundered by Muslims um, from the coast of North Africa at that time, and burned and plundered and, and you know, crosses stolen and jewelry and or relics were destroyed and all that, the sort of thing that you're used to. That was in 846, you know, almost 2,000 years, 1,000 years ago, more than 1,000 years ago. So that, the point is this sort of thing went on and on and on, and people and, and, the, and the old world changed. You know, you can cut me off anytime you want because this is a long story, and I can keep, I'm more than happy to continue. You know, uh, no, I, I think that this foundation is so, uh, this is absent from uh, modern-day Talk so no, please continue. And you're talking about things that um that I haven't even heard of, and I'm sure many in the audience have not as well. Yeah, no. Okay, okay. Anytime you want to jump in, feel free because it's a long story. <clears throat> I'm trying to give you the 10 minute version. So, <clears throat> you know, th- and, and that was the world. You had the Muslim world, which is now North Africa, Southwest Asia, um, but you still had Constantinople, the, the city of the Byzantine Empire in the east, and you still had. You know, all these castles that were the, the feudal era and the castles up in the mountains, all of that was built because people, Europeans, were running away from the coastlines, which were habitually being plundered and raided by Muslim corsairs coming from North Africa, as well as Spain. And they took islands, which they used as bases as well, including Sicily, Sardinia, Crete, Cyprus, all of these regions were their bases to launch raids onto um, Mediterranean Europe constantly. And, you know, and so this goes on and on. And Charlemagne, you know, Charlemagne the Great, we, we, we hear of him. And most people, you know, here's the politically correct, uh, you know, feel-good history. Charlemagne was friends with Haroun al-Rashid in um, the, the Abbasid Caliph. And, you know, they had, they, they used to work together and they sent each other gifts and letters. And that just shows you that, you know, hey, first of all, Muslims are not so bad as you think, even Charlemagne. When you dig into the um, the actual history, what you find is, first of all, they were only friends because they had a common enemy, which was a different dynasty in Spain. Spain was a lot closer to France, to the Franks, Charlemagne, and that dynasty was also warring against the Abbasid Caliphate in the east. So you, it was just a you know natural shift of alliance between the two. But also, it's amazing when you find in the charters that Charlemagne used to, according to his biographer, try to foster relationships, friendly relationships with Muslim leaders in order to help the Christians underneath their rule. And he would send money, and he would send lots of charity money to help out Christians in Jerusalem and so forth. And I think most people think that kind of thing is... Kind of like the the mob money, protection money almost, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The jizya. (laughs) The jizya, and that's its own uh, topic we can get into. Um, And then, you know, then the Turks come on the scene. Okay, uh, Islam by the year 1000 was kind of starting to weaken because of infighting. You had the Sunni Abbasids fighting now with the Fatimid Shias. You know, how many people know that Egypt was actually a, a, the headquarters of Shia Islam for a couple of centuries? 
and that Cairo, modern Cairo, was founded by Shias, and that Al-Azhar, that great Islamic madrasa or university, the most prestigious one in the world, which of course is a bastion of Sunni learning, was in origins a Shia madrasa uh, for centuries, or a couple of centuries, people don't know this, but so the Abbasids, so there was a lot of infighting between Muslims and the concept of jihad started to wane a little bit. Then the Turks crash in on the scene, and uh, especially the Seljuk Turks. And they immediately convert to Islam. And even it's interesting to me how when you read how they, the people who ended up converting to Islam always ended up to be nomads. And the reason I believe for that is the, the doctrines of the religion as formulated by Muhammad himself a nomad. I know people say, well, no, he comes from a sedentary city and so forth. It's still the nomadic mentality. I, I believe that the religion he formulated, because he himself was a nomad, was very appealing and made sense to nomadic peoples. And so you find, right after the Arabs, a nomadic people, the next group to come and embrace it wholeheartedly are the Turks. And even the early sources tell you they didn't really care about the doctrines, of Islam, but what really jives with them is the concept of jihad against the other, which is of course already a tribal idea, you know, the tribe versus everyone else. Everyone else not part of the tribe, we just devastate, we enslave, we kill, they don't count, they're not humans. And so this idea you see in Islam, in the concept of the ummah, of course the word ummah, uh, it's often translated as nation, you know, the Muslim nation. And what it means is the Muslim world transcending linguistic, ethnic, racial barriers. So all believers are part of one tribe. And then if you go into the Islamic worldview, uh, which dichotomizes the world, you have Dar al-Islam, the Islamic world, versus Dar al-Harb, which is the non-Muslim world, which is, and the two have to be at war until Islam uh, uh, um, is victorious. So you can see this is all very much tribal kind of thinking. And so the Turks come, immediately embrace Islam, Muslims say they don't even, they still drink alcohol, they do pagan practices, but boy, they're great jihadis, and they sure love to conquer in the name of Allah. And so they renew the war on Byzantium, and the Battle of Manzikert is very pivotal in the year 1071, they completely overrun Anatolia, Asia Minor. And if you look, you know, this is amazing to me, if you read the sources of that, of what, what the Turks did, the Seljuk Turks, when they entered Asia Minor, and the, the main group of people who were living there were the Armenians, um, who are, of course, Christian, Orthodox Christians. And if you read the sources of the atrocities that they committed just constantly, we're talking tens of thousands of people put to the sword, hundreds of thousands enslaved. The texts tell you of, you know, of all the brutal raping they would do, and they would rape mom, mothers in front of daughters, daughters in front of mothers, and force them to do lewd acts and then decapitate them. They would stab them with crosses. They would, of course, burn churches. And, you know, the kind of atrocities that you read there would make ISIS almost look like Boy Scouts, you know. But the reason I bring this up is because, and now we go into the next battle, which is really Christendom responds with the Crusades. So you know all about the Crusades, Pope Urban, the year 1095, and so forth. People don't connect the fact, though, that 1071, Manzikert, Anatolia taking over, the atrocities I was speaking of happening, and then the Byzantines crying for help to Rome, and then that actually was the number one reason that rallied the Crusaders, along with, of course, liberating Jerusalem, which is in the same context, because it was the Turks in Jerusalem doing the same sorts of things as well, um, the, the absolute atrocities that are uh, documented. So what I find interesting, though, is if you look at the histories of the Crusades today, all of what I just told you is, not, is absent. 
Okay, mm -hmm. it all starts off with this cynical Pope Urban decided to call for crusades, and all these, you know, all these cynical European knights decided let's go colonize J Jerusalem. And you know, the Muslim world was at peace at the time, and Christians and Muslims were getting along, and those nasty, you know, crusaders. Look what they did. And all that I just told you, this long history, which is four centuries long, of nonstop, basically ISIS doing things, is completely thrown out. And, and, and all they tell you is that. And then every time the Crusaders engage in what, by our standards, is an atrocity, and they did, they did the same things. They would go and they would kill the Muslims left and right. But, you know, isn't it important to have the context of what was happening, what the Muslim world was doing for centuries to Christians, and why and how this was actually their only way to respond and fight back was to retaliate and try to actually go and liberate um, the, the Byzantine Empire from the Turkish slash Islamic yoke, as well as the Church of Resurrection in Jerusalem. I can keep going, but yeah, no. If we can, <laughs> if we can stop here for a second, yeah. um, just my memory of, of learning history in school, it, it does always start at the Crusades. They don't, and even you know. Uh, putting things in historical perspective, whether it's in news media, whether it's people giving presentations about it, they the Crusades are always painted as some, um, you know, Catholic European, uh, you know, assault, offensive assault on oh, Muslims. genocide, and, right? You know? I mean, right. It, it, yeah, yeah. And and, and Mr. Ibrahim, if we could do this, because of the environment in which we live, I mean, this is such a rich history that you're that you're providing. But I'd like to bring it forward at, at when you're comfortable with this, because what we're seeing today is, to me, the, the, this rise of this anti-Semitic ideology and the, or the, the, this um, uh, anti. Yeah, you've got the, the for example, now you've got you've got the, the the two state solution with Israel and 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 people saying, well, the Palestinian or the um, Israelis are, are committing genocide in the West Bank and such, and I, I mean. Uh, yeah, I could. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, I don't know how to explain it to you. From history to today, seems to be about uh, you know Muslims versus the rest of the world, especially Christians. And from I don't know, as long as I can remember, it's always been painted as you know the uh, Europeans, the Christians are the oppressive ones. They've always been trying the to Jews. rid the world. Of, yeah, they've always been trying to rid the world of Islam. And um, the way that you're uh, putting this together from the beginning uh, to, you know, we got to the crusade so far, it does paint a totally different picture. And a little bit off topic, maybe if, uh, you probably know a lot more about this than I can find out. The library in Alexandria, was that destroyed before the Muslim invasion of Egypt, or was that a result of the Muslim invasion? Yeah, sure, that's a great question. Well, it's like this. Muslim historians say that the story goes that when Amr ibn al-As entered Egypt, and he was one of the companions of Muhammad, entered Egypt around the year six, you know, conquered it in 640, Alexandria, he sent a message to Omar, the caliph at the time, the second caliph, um, saying, we found this humongous library with all these books, etc., etc., what should we do with it? And so uh, Omar's, and Muslims love his response, it's considered so, you know, so curt and wise, is... <clears throat> If those books teach what we say, we don't need them. If they contradict us, we don't want them. Burn them. And so, um, supposedly, he burned it. Now, this is what Muslim historians say, okay? Now, Western historians, um, for politically correct reasons, of course, don't like to... They've decided that's a fabrication because 
Um, by the time that um, the Muslims entered Egypt in, in the seventh century, the Library of Alexandria was essentially already almost destroyed or partially destroyed. So even if they did anything, it, it couldn't have been, um, you know, the final. It wasn't. It wasn't the main reason it got destroyed. There's the story of Caesar, you know, and in his wars and the library burns and so forth. But what's important to me, and I think what should be understood, is we don't know who did it. Maybe it wasn't the Muslims. Okay, but what we do know is Islamic te history teaches that it was Muslims who did it, and Muslims believe their own history. And so in Muslim eyes, they believe that the Library of Alexandria was burned for the reason I gave you, because it didn't, you know, if it, it either agrees with us, we don't need it, or it contradicts us, we don't want it. And so that has become part of their legacy, and that's why you see ISIS and other groups doing what they do and destroying antiquities and burning libraries and doing this sort of thing, because they believe that's what happened. And I think that's even more important than what really did happen, which no one can really fully know. But and and this is a theme I always you know try to bring forward. You have to look at Islamic history, which a lot of Western scholars kind of push aside and say, eh, we don't think it's very accurate. But you have to look at it to understand why Muslims do what they do, because they believe it's accurate to them, it's sacred. And so to your average Muslim, yeah, of course the the Muslims burned the Library of Alexandria, and that gives you a glimpse of the way they think. Fantastic. And, and, and that's a great question. It, Joe and I were talking in preparation of the show, and, and, and I'll tell you something. I, I, I thought it was much earlier, but I'm, I'm glad. Okay, so you, you framed that really well. We only have a couple of minutes before the uh, bottom of the hour, but let, let me ask, um, with respect to uh, current events, because our time is limited uh, in, in terms of tonight's show, um, fast forward to more modern times we're seeing this this many many claims of the that that the modern day jews are occupying a land that they don't well they stole the land away from the palestinians or the the arabs in other words um, you know which serves as the foundation for a lot of anti-semitic uh, sentiments so i'd like to really explore this a little bit more is that all right with you know can, sure, we, can we speak sure. on that okay because and i think after this after the bottom of the hour break i think we should go there but um we're seeing well we've seen the the the, the attempt to, this peace process the two-state solution and such and and now with under trump we're seeing the uh, uh potential for moving the embassy just a real quick uh here in the minute we have a minute and a half before the bottom of the hour break um the the embassy act of 1995 which moves the embassy uh, US embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem if that does happen i mean is is that is that going to inflame the sentiments of the arab world and if so or what's going to be the result of that if that does take place so let me tell you something about the Arab street and the Arab and the angry Arab street a lot of that is exaggerated and it's propaganda from al jazeera and it's it's just fully exaggerated. Now, I'm not saying that a lot of Muslims wouldn't dislike it or whatever the case may be, but for them to go to the point of violence and, and, and this and so forth, those are professional jihadis who are working for groups to undermine Israel. Those are the ones, okay? But a group, uh, Al Jazeera, and more often than not, Western media, BBC and so forth, they just follow Al Jazeera, uh, Al Jazeera's lead. Will of course show it like Muslims are just ready to detonate themselves everywhere left and right. Okay, yeah, there will be some who are angry. What we have to understand is, you know, one thing that Western people in general need to understand about the Muslim mentality is, 
if anything, when they see passivity and you know and you know, non-Muslims acting passive, they disrespect it. They 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 are aggressive and they appreciate and respect. So when they say, you know, Israel taking Jerusalem and so and so forth, well, that's what they would do. That's not shocking. And we shock to go crazy on the earth. Raymond, uh, if you can hold that thought, we are up against our our last break of the evening. Folks, you're listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report with Raymond, Raymond Ibrahim on, and his website is Raymond, I-B-R-A-H-I-M.com. Bookmark the site. He's an author of um, The Al-Qaeda Reader and Crucified Again, and we're going to find out the book he's working on now, which we're talking about now, uh, when that will be available. He'll be with us throughout the next segment. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hagman and Hagman Report, bringing you top quality guests like Raymond Ibrahim, uh, author, lecturer, just a wealth of information, laying the foundation, the historical context for where we are today. He's an author of uh, two books. Go to his website, RaymondIbrahim.com. It's linked off of Hagman and Hagman Report, of course. Yeah, the and books are uh, Crucified Again and the Al-Qaeda Reader. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic writer and very prolific writer. And, and in fact, we're going to be talking about one of the articles on his website, uh, coming right up here. Seize Saudi, Saudi oil solve world problems. Sounds simple enough. I, I, look, I'll sign on to that. Before we get back to our guest, let me tell you about Minuteman Rocket Stove. Go to MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com. You want to, you want a great piece of equipment for your preps. Look, the power goes out. You're not going to have any, um, really any facilities to cook if the grid goes down or whatever and you know open source cooking or uh, cooking over an open flame not the greatest way to do things well the Minuteman rocket stove it's the perfect survival cooking stove for you and your family it is a biomass burning stove it only requires a small amount of sticks and twigs for fuel so if you live in downtown Brooklyn uh, Queens wherever you can actually find enough debris you know small sticks and such to use this efficiently it's fully insulated with this great ceramic refractory insulation that focuses the heat which results in cooking power comparable to a kitchen stove and all of this and you could actually set it on a picnic table and carry it around because the outside only reaches 200 degrees in temperature you'll notice that it doesn't give off much smoke if you're if that's a concern because well for health or to give away your location perhaps it's self-contained and seals airtight for travel and storage. It's the only self-contained rocket stove on the market. It is the rocket stove, the official rocket stove of the Hagman and Hagman Report. It's a 50 caliber ammo can, by the way, design. Uh, it's got a carrying handle and uh, weighs 14 pounds. Travels clean, travels light, no smells or soot, whether you store it inside your vehicle or or on your shelf after use. Those are just some of the features I mentioned. Go to MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com for all details. Folks, you can also get fire starters as well. Those are some fantastic pieces of equipment. You want to start a fire very quickly, 
I, I recommend nothing else but Minuteman fire starters. Minuteman stove. Go there. Minuteman. Uh, Minutemanstove.com. I'm sorry about that. Minutemanstove.com. And by the way, Green Innovative, when I mentioned last hour, Green Innovative, using the coupon code HAGMAN for the month of February, Green Innovative, use the coupon code HAGMAN, and you will receive as a gift throughout this month a free set of six rechargeable AA batteries. That's greenovative.com using the coupon code HAGMAN, and you'll get a gift of a free set of six double light batteries our guest is Raymond Ibrahim go to his website Raymond I-B-R-A-H-I-M dot com he's author of a few books and he's working on his next book now and he's joining us until uh, for the rest of the segment until the end of the show um, his book won't be out for a while we'll have him back on to um, promote that working title is Sword and uh, Scimitar. So. Yeah, Sword and, and Scimitar. Scimitar, uh, sorry. Definitely an interesting title as well as interesting subject matter as we, as he, Raymond, outlined um, the history of the Muslim world, the expansion of the Muslim world through uh, conquest of Christian nations to, and we got to the point up to the Crusades. Uh, Raymond, I don't know how much further you want to go. Um, but I can bring it up. Uh, I can probably wrap it up in five minutes. Go ahead. Okay. So, okay, the Crusades, we know, uh, eventually lose. Uh, and Jerusalem's recaptured 1187, Battle of Patton, Saladin, the great chivalrous, um, you know, uh, Muslim knight, except he's not when you look at the Muslim sources because he used to, of course, burn churches, break crosses, enslave people, and his dying wish was to chase everyone around the globe until they said there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. Um, that's according to Islamic sources. You don't hear that. You hear the great, tolerant, benevolent Saladin. Um, and then, you know, there's the crusade that actually won, which, again, few people know about. This is the Reconquista in Spain. In Spain, because, again, if we go back to the very beginning, to chapter 1, the Muslims overran it in the 7th century, or actually the early 8th century, around 711 and, and so forth. And they took Spain, and from the start, you know, you, you hear about the great, you know, golden era and Cordoba, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's not the case. From the start, you have the Christians uh, e- either living as what's called Vimnis under Islamic rule, and it's not very tolerant. Sometimes it's decent. A lot of times it's bad. There were all these people who were martyred uh, Christians because they were critical of Muhammad. They blasphemed. Sound familiar? They all got beheaded. That's just one of many anecdotes uh, from Islamic Spain. Um, and the long story, long and short, is the, a lot of the Christian powers congregated in the north. And eventually were constantly warring for centuries with the Muslims of Spain until they eventually won. And that's the, you know, the reconquest, the conquista. And that took centuries. And then it, it culminated with the eviction of all Muslims from the uh, Iberian Peninsula or Spain in 1492. So they actually were at it for 700 years. They had an Islam problem for 700 years. Okay. And, uh, and then, um, so then the Seljuks and, and then the Crusaders and all that, that, uh, out of the ashes of the Turkish Empire, you get the Ottomans, and now they become the, the new jihad machine, you know, uh, par excellence, better than all the others. And their mission is to get Rome and, and Constantinople, the two hold out apostolic sees, as we saw Alexandria and Antioch and uh, Jerusalem already taken by the sword of Islam. 1453, siege of Constantinople is taken in the name of Islam. All the barbarities are used to the slaughters and the burning of churches, including the seizure of the greatest church at the time, the Hagia Sophia, 
um, in Constantinople, which was immediately turned into a mosque after they washed all the blood out of it from the from the bloodbath they had of killing monks and nuns and raping them in there. And and then they continued moving into the Balkan Peninsula. Greece was conquered, Hungary was conquered, parts of Poland, until they got to Vienna in 1683. We're talking now approximately, um, you know, this is only uh, 300 years ago, 1683. Uh, and it's a thousand years after Islam started attacking Christendom in the West. Remember, our first battle was in 636. Now, 1683, you have them at the gates of Vienna, the same imperative. And it's important to keep in mind, you see, if you read one of the problems I have with history books is a lot of them may mention what I've said. They'll give you the facts, but missing is the Islamic element. If you don't know any better, you will think that the Ottoman Empire is just like the Habsburgs. It's just another empire, and hey, they're all fighting. That's what they do. Each one's trying to take the other's land. No, if you delve in the sources, you will find the Ottoman Empire justifying its rationale 100% like ISIS, quoting the verses of Allah, saying this is our commandment by Allah to take the world, to convert, and so forth, and, and jihad. All that stuff is there up until 1683. And then they lose. And then, But it doesn't end there because, uh, you know, the, the defeat of the Ottoman Empire, it's, they're still strong for another couple hundred years. They, they exist until World War I, essentially. But even before that, America, the United States, as a fledgling nation, encounters the Islamic jihad. And the, the, the Marines, or if it was the Navy, actually was formed in response to Islamic Jihad in the Mediterranean, Thomas Jefferson, the Barbary Wars from about 1801 to 1815. And again, when, he, when they meet the um, ambassador from Tripoli, they ask him, why are you enslaving, why are you raiding our ships, plundering our goods, killing our men? His simple answer, because Allah commands us to do so. You're the infidel. This is our right. You have three choices. Convert, you know, pages, yeah, tribute, and so forth, or die. And um, here's an, an interesting anecdote. Thomas Jefferson bought a Quran, and because at the time, you know, he's he's a he's a fellow of the Enlightenment. You know, they for, they he, they already had started forgetting about this Islam stuff, Northern and Western Europeans, like Edward Gibbon and so forth. And that's why you get this new view of Islam, almost like a romanticized view. But to someone like Thomas Jefferson, he forgot, so he buys a Quran to start understanding what this ambassador is saying, this jihad stuff. Now, what's interesting is I used to work at the uh, Library of Congress. And I worked at the Thomas Jefferson building, which houses his collection. And um, the, I used to work for the Middle Eastern Department. And when they would show, dignitaries would come, and they would want to see the Quran of Thomas Jefferson. It was always presented as, this is how enlightened and open-minded Thomas Jefferson was. He wanted to read the Quran because he really was fascinated with these people, the Muslims, and he wanted to learn about their religion. Absent from that is no, he actually did it as a blueprint, as a manual of war, because he was at war with the Barbary pirates who were justifying their abductions in the name of jihad and so forth. And that's now, we're now at 1815. And so you can see, you know, we can end it right here. And it's a short jump uh, now to things like Al-Qaeda and the, the rise of Saudi wealth and the spread of Islamic terrorism and ideologies and Al-Qaeda and now ISIS. So you can see it's a very long and old and unwavering history. Unwavering indeed, and um, I guess the next question is, um, how does this all end? Do we see, and I know uh, you obviously can only go by... Um, well, past performance, historical uh, performance. Is this a, an ending that is, um, you know, biblical in nature, um, you know, uh, civilization ending, uh, apocalyptic, or uh, will we see a different outcome that we might not expect 
Well, you know, I can see all the things that you've said. I can see elements of that uh, personally. But I go back to what I said before, which is, you know, the unwavering hostility of Islamic Jihad has uh, has been unwavering. But their capacity has greatly diminished. And so where once they, you know, they came into Europe on boats and on land in great masses and great armies with the sword and the spear and so forth, uninvited, and battles took place, now they're not doing that. They're actually, people are opening the door and welcoming them and holding signs saying, I love refugees, please come, and so forth. So that's really the problem we're dealing with. If you say what now, um, to me, the Islamic world is immensely weak. Uh, you know, forget, I mean, the collective non-Muslim world, all of us infidels, what, three, four billion people now, or five compared to the Muslims, um, wanted to do something about it, I'm sure Islam would recede very quick, quickly. So I think the uh, the imperative point to keep in mind now is the hostility is still there, but you have now a lot of stupid policies set in place that make it a threat, when in and of itself, it's not a threat. It's it, it, it should be crawling underneath a rock in fear. But it's actually Western policies, domestic and foreign, that create it into a force that it is right now. So that's the, that's the good and the bad news. So they're emboldened by our, our I mean, our, our lack of action, yeah, yeah, and our weakness. And then the um, obvious, uh, you know, you have the global... A new world order that that is using them to further destabilize civilization. I want to kind of ask you a question out of left field. Nine eleven. Do you believe? We obviously have many theories, many stories. Some facts don't add up from the official story. A lot of facts don't add up. Was it nineteen Muslim hijackers from Saudi Arabia uh, and Osama bin Laden and the mastermind behind this, or is there a lot more to this that we're not being told? You know, I tend to think there's a lot more to, to this than we're being told. And I look, I, I try to work with what, you know, the, dom, the the narrative is. I try to work within the narrative. And so if the narrative is 9-11 is a product of, you know, Muslims, 15 out of 19 from Saudi Arabia and so forth, I'll work with that. I definitely see why they would do that. I mean, and in fact, I've worked a lot in Al-Qaeda texts and their own writings and translated them, and that's what they want to do. So I, I, you know, I can, but I, but I'm cynical enough and um, <laughs> cognizant enough not to be the sort of guy who who immediately <clears throat> rejects something and says, no, that's conspiracy theory. Um, I think, you know, of course there's conspiracy theories. If you don't believe there's conspiracy theories, you're so naive as to basically be saying everything is transparent and everyone's telling you everything that's happening. Obviously, that's not the case. But I just try to work within, you know, the accepted. Narrative, but at the same time, I don't reject or censure um, what someone else would say that would essentially make it a, a larger um, project than basically Islamic terrorists. Got it. All right, I think we should we should have you as the uh, uh, Trump foreign policy advisor because what we need to do to eradicate ISIS, of course, according to your article, and I love this. Let's go over and seize the Saudi oil uh, wells. Okay, let's do that right now because with that. Uh, um, oh, you you write here for uh, WND. Would you like to know how the United States can virtually eliminate global Islamic terrorism and world hunger with one stroke? And then the answer is, of course, seize the Saudi oil wells. Boy, tell us about that. <laughs> sure. Well, <clears throat> basically, um, let's look at what Saudi Arabia is doing. Saudi Arabia spends what, and this is all documented. Saudi Arabia spends a hundred billion dollars to spread. Uh, you know, what they call Wahhabism or radical terrorism, the worst kind of, uh, not radical terrorism, 
radical Islam, Wahhabism, the worst form of Islam, the, the, the ISIS kind of Islam. They spent $100 billion disseminating it all around the globe. Okay, and so Boko Haram in Nigeria, you know, Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, um, <clears throat> in Somalia, El Shaped, all these are funded by Saudi Arabia. Okay, um, <clears throat> so they, they pay for the radicalization via programs and mosques and radical literature and so forth, and they actually are the chief supporters of all the terrorists. Okay, <clears throat> so now my argument is, you know, we were able to go into Iraq um, under pretty dubious uh, uh, pretext, basically, well, he's a bad guy, and he's developing weapons of mass destruction, which he wasn't. And as far as a bad guy, sure, he was a bad guy, but so is every other third-world dictator, and there's a couple hundred out there uh, killing people left and right. So, And if that was enough to get the American people on board to go on a war, well, why not a war where we're actually going to the bad guy, the source, or as I call them, the head of the jihadi snake, okay, and taking them out. And the thing is, this wouldn't even be a war. You know, Iraq actually had one of the strongest armies in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia, and, and I offer not just America, let's say the United Nations or with Russia and America, that's not even a war. It's just you go in and you take it. Now, I'm not saying take it to enrich the West. I'd rather you take all that money and, you know what, rather than spend it on disseminating radical Islamic literature and Islamic terrorist groups, feed the poor and needy of the world. If, 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 you, if you have a guilt-conscious thing about seizing, you know, the resources of the Arabians, then fine, give it to them. At least it's better than going into the hands of those who, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS would not exist without Saudi funding. These are all well-known facts. And so to me... But I think the problem is people, uh, you know, we still can't think outside the box. So to even say what I'm saying, and I anticipated this, of course, in my first sentence, this is preposterous. We're not going to go against them. They're our friends and allies and so forth. And, you know, our leaders kiss them and bow before them, Bush and Obama. But, you know, we have a new, you know, we have a new guy in town. Old paradigms are breaking. So why not at least start thinking about, you know, the at least start thinking of the relationship of Saudi Arabia and the United States. Saudi Arabia is just ISIS. It's another face of ISIS. They have the same flag. It's just green. It says on it, there's no God but Allah, Muhammad is a messenger with a sword. What do you think that black flag ISIS run, runs around with says? Identical thing, with a sword. Um, and so, you know, but they've got, and they've spent trillions of dollars over the decades. Think about that kind of money. Um, just to radicalize groups and to support them materially. And so to me, it's just a simple, you know, one, one two stroke. You can take them out. And aren't we always told that Muslims around the world are moderate? Well, then they should actually be happy to see the Saudi regime go. They'll get Mecca and Medina liberated. And uh, as far as the, you know, the indigenous inhabitants, the Arabs, give them a rich stipend. They can still live rich. Okay, but take that oil wealth away from those who are using it to radicalize and support all these terrorist organizations. And it's easily done, and it's justified. You know, if you know of a terrorist organization, don't we seize and uh, freeze their assets? What's the difference? Saudi Arabia is well known to be the chief supporter of all these terrorist groups. Fantastic. And I would urge everyone to read the article. Of course, go to RaymondIbrahim.com. It's linked off of HagmanReport.com. you got a ton of questions from our listening audience via email. But let me ask you this, the um, this one in particular the question about Iran, the nuclear capabilities of Iran, and the deal uh, that uh, we've had with Iran. Your thoughts on on this? A big big topic for sure, but nonetheless, well, uh, 
Go ahead. Well, to summarize my thoughts, they're very much like Donald Trump's. I think it's a terrible and stupid deal, one of the stupidest, just like he said, uh, where you actually get, get nothing and you give them everything. Um, and Iran is definitely a big threat. It's a big player in that area. Um, you know, another strategy, and, and here's a cynical strategy. Remember, Iran is a Shia nation, and uh, Saudi Arabia, not to mention every terrorist group we're fighting, uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hamas uh, against Israel, and even these African ones, Boko Haram, they're all Sunnis. That's why I, I originally you know, pinpointed Saudi Arabia. But, of course, Iran is its own big issue. But another cynical way is, you know, just set them against each other, and that's the historical one. Even before there were, you know, CIA, CIA operatives to create machinations between different groups, the Sunnis and Shias have been at each other's throat. <laughs> so that's uh, that's another way that uh, you know America and the West can keep their hands clean and basically keep them busy. But I think these days they're they're, they're they've been smarter than our leaders, as Trump has said, both the Shias and the Saudis, and they've been playing with our leaders. So that's why they, they they are right now working together. The enemy is my enemy is my friend, and that sort of thing. So I think it's time to rethink and get them on board. So all those groups are actually fighting them, not us or Israel. Um, Raymond, I have a question that's kind of out of left field again, and this is something I've seen a lot of people um, claim or, or say that it's true, but I've I haven't done the research myself, and I'm sure this is something that you uh, are very well aware of. The relationship between Catholicism and Islam. Was there any historical connections between the two? Uh, it's particularly from the Vatican uh, creating Islam or having a hand in creating the Muslim religion. I've, I've heard of these theories. I've uh, my doctor gave me some uh, DVDs to watch, and I've, I've watched some. And uh, you know, I've seen the the, the um, you know the evidences that or the aspects they try to connect, um, like the halal and so forth. I didn't really spend enough time to give you a yes, I agree, or no, I agree, but my initial inclination was to disagree simply on the fact of, you know, Catholicism historically has been the chief um, uh, enemy of Islam. Now, it may be in its origins um, something went wrong and, and all this, which I don't know. This is now we're going in the hoary aged past, and who knows what really happened. But if you look at history, you know, the, the Catholics in Spain, the Catholic Franks, and the Crusades and so forth. So you definitely see, uh, you know, a, a big, uh, you know, antithesis, a dichotomy between them as enemies. So what what the origins were, and that, but that brings a good point. You know, the, the origins of Islam are very fuzzy in and of, of themselves to the point that some people claim Muhammad never even existed. Um, uh, I personally think some guy named something like Muhammad did exist. I don't believe that all the stuff they say he said and did, that they actually reported it accurately. But I, I do believe that he had, his whole thing was what I mentioned, that tribal mentality of just we are all one group, they're another, God's with us, God hates them, let's kill them and so forth. But anyway, I'm waxing there. I, I, I can't say much, but my gut reaction is I don't necessarily believe that's the case. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you something. You really laid the foundation, in my view, anyway, the, the just a tremendous educational uh, foundation for the historical context for where we're at today. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot. Well, we saw, I should say, this push for tolerance for, um, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, uh, you know, with with the language being uh, many terms being expunged from our training manuals, intelligence training manuals, and such. Um, 
I, I guess the last question I have is um, with respect to the uh, with respect to the domestic threat here in the United States. We're, we're seeing this this apparent rise of uh, of uh, well incidents like Muslim killings and uh, very, well, you mentioned many of the attacks here in the, in the United States. Do you see, based on everything that uh, that we've covered, do you see a rise coming with these attacks, or do you think that? And I know some of this is going to be speculation, but based on previous experience and performance, do you see the the attacks or the threat of Islamic inspired attacks here in the United States diminishing in the near term? Yeah, based on precedence, uh, what what I see and what usually happens is, I, I think the logic is, oh, Trump's coming, Muslims are going to be angry, now they're going to retaliate. It's actually the opposite. Muslims and Islam, think of it as a schoolyard bully. Okay, where someone shows weakness, it just keeps bullying them and pushing them and beating them. Where someone actually stands up against it, it retreats in the background. And that's why, how often do you see uh, Islamic terrorists attacking Russia? Sure, sometimes. Or China or even these Eastern European countries, very little. It's always in those countries who are the most accommodating and who go out of their way to be appeasing and nice, Western Europe and the United States and Australia and Canada and so forth. Is that not the case? And I believe that's just a natural reaction from the Muslim mentality where they respect strength. Like I said, they understand it. I mean, that's, that's how they think. And so when they see someone being strong and, and protective, they, they get it and they get slapped down and then they don't retaliate. But when they see someone who, after every bombing, every attack, talks about you know how they're scared of a, Muslim, a backlash against Muslims and how we need to be nice and their only response is to put you know Eiffel Towers on Facebook and cry, well, that's just asking for more attacks. Very well put and very simple. It's as simple as that. It is very simple. Yeah, Raymond, I want to thank you for for taking the time out and joining us tonight and sharing um, the great analysis um, of Islam and the history of yeah. Islam and the origins. And we look forward to having you back on in the future. Um, yeah. Can you point people where they can get your books? Sure. You know, the best stop is uh, my website, like you've been pointing out, RaymondIbrahim.com, just Raymond, I-B-R-A-H-I-M.com. And there's links to my books on Amazon there and all my articles. And you can also like it on social media and so forth, and uh, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. No, it's been, it's been our pleasure. Thank you so very much for spending uh, so much time and your gracious gift of time. God bless you, my friend. Thank you so much again for your expertise, analysis, and time. Folks, uh, that was Raymond Ibrahim. His website is linked, of course, on HagmanReport.com. What a what a great man. What a great interview. What, what a wealth of information. I would really like for everyone to share the, the this program which you heard from Mr. Ibrahim and also yeah. spread this on social media and make sure you uh, uh, spread the word about his website and his articles. We had uh, you know not only Raymond on uh, we also had James Corbett from the Corbett Report on from 7:30 to 8:30 and that was a great interview if he joined us late and uh, we have pretty much a full week this week I think Friday uh, a half hour tomorrow or a half hour on end of Thursday and the first hour Friday is the only thing we have open right now. I know Wednesday it shows open that first hour, yeah, but that's not that. open. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot going on. There's a, a new bill. There's something, a few things I didn't get to today. Uh, one, there's a new bill in the U.S. that passed the U.S. Congress of the U.S. to exit the United Nations. It could become a reality with 
this new legislator and administration. Now, it passed through Congress. We'll see if it passes through the Senate. Um, Boy, I didn't know we we gave so, the UN so many billions of dollars every year. We fund 22% of the UN yeah. internationally. Yeah. And um, not only are they trying to get the US out of the UN, they're trying to completely cut any funding and support to the new the UN. Repurpose uh, that building. Yeah, that's what they say. They get, get us out of the UN, get the UN out of this country, and you know we'll use the money for better uh, things. Um, uh, today, Trump broke some traditions that got people a little upset at the Associated Press. Yeah. <laughs> Reporters upset after New York Post gets the first question because historically and traditionally it's only supposed to be the AP who receives the first question, uh. and they were not happy about that. If you go to the Daily Caller, there are a number of tweets from angry reporters how about how that? Trump is how such a jerk. And again, the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal was signed away by Trump in executive action today. Also, there is a on the Gateway Pundit um, shock video. Democrat sets fire to Trump supporters' hair. We didn't get a chance. What to did get you just that. say? Uh, There's a video yeah, of, I, a, of um, the, over the weekend the protest. There was a Trump, a few women Trump supporters who were in this protest, right? And there's a video of Democrats setting fire to a Trump supporter's Democrat, hair at an inaugural okay. protest. Right. Female Trump supporter had her hair set on fire by a female Democrat who was protesting the inauguration of President Trump. All that's, while the anti-Trump mom chanted, love Trump's hate. Love Trump's hate. Hey, come here. And see, what bothers Go me about match. this, and I talked to John about this and, and a few other people, is that it's not like, um, as John said, it's not like you know this lady was caught sleeping with the other lady's husband. This is just a, a, mis- a disagreement based on... A political support or non-support, and you have this kind of violence and, and hate, and I think it's only going to continue to get worse. So we'll keep our eye on that. That'll do it for us tonight. We will be back tomorrow. I want to thank James James Corbett and Raven Ibrahim for the great guest tonight. Till tomorrow, stay safe. God bless. Have a good evening.